1: So, Butler, yeah, they do go after DiVincenzo. They switch him. Let's see where help comes from here with Lopez. Butler steps in, kicks out. Robinson, oh, he got caught in the air. Almost intercepted. Butler steps back to tie. Tipped out. Ariza gets in the corner. Dragic to tie it. Yes, sir. Wow. They're going to go and no And now the Bucks out. have
2: the last shot.
1: They're going to go no timeout here.
2: Don't let the Heat put in defensive subs. I agree Butler with
1: this. Butler is on holiday. Yeah, this is absolutely... I think they're going to just ISO Chris Middleton here against Robinson. Oh, don't this set what this what I would for- do. Yeah, no, they are going to set the screen. They switch it. Middleton fading away on Robinson. Yes!
2: Oh!
1: With 0.5! Chris Middleton! Great decision by Bud not to take the time out that left them that matchup. And although they tried to get it, stuck out of it, they went right back Robinson's way. And Milwaukee now leads by two. 0.5 left. We'll see if they put any extra time back on. So that is how we called it. On the NBA cast, on Hot Mic, awesome service we're doing now. You can sync up automatically. The mic listens to the volume on your TV and then syncs up our commentary with your TV. So it's just totally seamless. We can become your announcers. Takes like 10 seconds to get it set up. Really cool app. That's where we are broadcasting the NBA cast this postseason. So join us on there. Next one we're doing is Hawks Knicks on Wednesday. And now let's talk about the gains from this weekend all right welcome on to our playoff coverage one of our favorite pods of the year start with saturday's games if you have dunked prime obviously you're listening to this hopefully on saturday night we're gonna release that but otherwise we're doing sunday night with all eight of the games and let's begin here with clippers and dallas 113 103 it was tied at 100 dallas closes it on a 13 to 3 run and I guess maybe where we can start here, Danny, is, and we'll ask the same question about Milwaukee and Miami coming up. How does this game one change how you feel about the series?
2: Well, I think that it is a reminder that the Clippers don't have a ton of great options to slow down Luka Doncic. And while they have a different coach and some different personnel than last year, they're going to have to figure all of that out. And also, you know, Dallas hitting 17 of 36 threes. You don't expect that to necessarily continue. But I thought some of the process stuff, I mean, Luca was generating really good looks.
1: Well, it was fascinating because I don't think luca he he took, I think, a couple of shots, both of which he airballed actually in the last five minutes of the game. And yet, completely controlled everything uh, for Dallas because the LA Clippers were double teaming him. And he set up a Tim Hardaway Jr. drive for an easy layup. Uh, off a of one pass, uh, he set up a, a play for Dorian Finney-Smith. Dorian Finney-Smith, man, has he improved his skill level as both a decision-maker off of closeouts and as a shooter, he had set up a Porzingis dunk. He also had an incredible pass all the way across court. One of those passes that he and LeBron from the right side of the floor, maybe those are the only guys who make those passes uh, to set up a Finney Smith three. And as, as you mentioned, the, the three-point shooting was ridiculous for Dallas. Finney Smith was four of five uh, as well. Tim Hardaway Jr. who got the start was five of nine. So he really controlled the game. And I thought the Clippers, their plan eventually was just, we're going to double Luka Doncic. But it's really difficult to do that when you don't have the defenders on the backside who are going to fly around and make it difficult in a four on three. And so, you know, Marcus Morris and Nick Batum and Rondo, like those guys on the backside of the action, they're not really able to make those kind of plays whether it's intimidating at the rim, intercepting, flying out for closeouts. Like those guys are acceptable one-on-one defenders in a switch system, but they don't make plays defensively. And if you're going to double team, someone in a four-on-three has to make a play and they didn't have that. And that's how you end up giving up wide open dunks and layups in the last two minutes of a close game. It's really just not good enough.
2: Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. And I think another way of kind of distilling some of that is that when you're going to a switching system, part of what you're doing there is you're trying to turn your opponent into an isolation offense. And that can work. You know, And the Clippers have defensive personnel that I think lends itself very well to a switching scheme. But you have to be at that level one through five in order to make it work. And there were times when they were trying to do that and had Reggie Jackson on the floor. And while Jackson was an important part of the Clippers' regular season success, it gave the Mavericks an open sword to just pick at in those circumstances.
1: Yeah, Jackson gave up a couple of drives to Jalen Brunson, who was outstanding in this game. He was out there at the end for the Mavs as well. 15 points, 7 of 8 from the foul line for Brunson. Brunson is a wonderful finisher, and again with the no Clippers rim protection, like if he gets past that initial line of defense, there just isn't enough help there at the rim with this group, and they did sign Serge Ibaka. We thought that he could be someone who would be helpful in that role. They have Zubat. Zubots never played again after Luka lit him up uh, a couple of times uh, on late switches uh, early in the third. Ibaka was plus 11, although that was mostly against bench groups. Luka did beat him one time, but I think they... If you're going to go with that small lineup, I mean, number one, the reason they do that is for offense. But number two, the reason you do that is to switch and to make Luka Doncic beat you one-on-one. And perhaps he's just that good. Perhaps he would he would do that to you. But, you know, he was 11 to 24, 31 points. I mean, that's better than a wide-open three or an uncontested dunk. And also, it gives you the option. Now, granted, Dallas is really hard to guard because they have shooting at all these other positions around Luka, right? They got Porzingis, uh, who can, can space the floor from three and you know all the other guys that they had out there are quality shooters but I mean I think that yes I I know Luca was great in the first half and he had 30 points early on but he can tend to wear down late in games as well you know he can tend to settle settle for that step back but yeah we can call that when you settle for a step back is that a settle uh so i I mean and is that gonna be perfect no like you're this is a great offensive team you're gonna have to figure out a way to outscore them on the other end and then by contrast Kawhi Leonard I think he only took one shot in the last five minutes or so at least while it was still close and he missed that that was out of a straight ato where they got him a quick handoff but anytime he got in the post they double teamed anytime that he tried to run a pick and roll up top they double teamed and Batum Morris, Rondo, like Rondo was doing well for a lot of the game, but uh, missed a, a three late, missed a layup late, and it, even though he closed it out. So that was uh, that was pretty ugly also. I mean, really, you know, 13 points in the last five minutes, that's not that terrible, but to only score three, I mean, that was pretty miserable. And these were not particularly good shots, I thought. Would you agree?
2: I would agree with that. And some of them were rushed. I thought that Paul George in particular, after he made a couple, he had a brutal start to the game, getting, getting all the jokes fired off on Twitter and everything else. He had a better second half, but just forcing, you know, Pulling up a three with 17 seconds left on the shot clock that wasn't even particularly open. And Marcus Morris took some terrible ones, got bailed out on one for a foul call. And the Clipper it didn't seem like the Clippers really had a plan. Like the Clippers sort of provided Dallas with one because they were doing the same thing on Luca and creating these four on threes. But the Clippers, there wasn't there wasn't like an identity for them offensively, other than the very few times they were able to get out and transition, because there's no transition in this game.
1: Yeah, that that was definitely the, the case. And obviously Luca is way better than Kawhi as a passer, right? And they also yes. double team Luca more aggressively than they did with Kawhi. Another thing that I thought was a, was pretty good was, you know, they would switch initially, and then as Kawhi was about to start to attack against the switch defender, then they would run the double team at him. Up top, after kind of everything had already settled behind the play, whereas Luca, he gets off the ball immediately or attacks immediately, right? Like he doesn't just back out. All right, the switch. I'm gonna take my time here. Like he's he is getting that ball moving right away. Um, you know, you would hope that Rondo could help with some of this, and they do have this great shooting. You think you ping it around after the double team, they should be able to get wide open threes. One of the greatest shooting teams. Of all time, but uh, that didn't happen. And so now they're down one zero. Um, know Porzingis he had a really rough game only one of five from three did have two big dunks late also had two big free throws on a beautiful inbounds pass set up by Rick Carlisle where they were it went out of bounds like five on the shot clock deep in the corner in the the last five minutes or so and they actually had Porzingis get a switch onto Batum and Porzingis never posts up physically so it took him completely by surprise he got right to the charge circle they threw it into him and and drew a foul late in the clock that was a big play um What else do you want to talk about from this one? I I got a few kind of random notes.
2: Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Kawhi's dunk on Moxie Kleba.
1: Well, and you know what was awesome? I mean, that was unbelievable, obviously. I mean, that was kind of reminiscent of Dwayne Wade on Anderson Vergeau years ago, just coming down the lane and getting that extension. But they didn't call the Euro foul. Like, Kristaps Porzingis tried to reach out and follow him. The refs just didn't call it. And hey, yes, you get one of the most spectacular plays in Clippers playoff history because they didn't call the Eurofile. And then, of course, in the fourth quarter, Dallas used two of their four team fouls before getting into the bonus to stop Clippers' fast breaks after turnovers and to prevent runouts. And it's just, man, it just, it has to go. It's so bad uh, that they just continue to allow this. There's just no reason for it.
2: It's, it's infuriating. And it, you know, I, I used the phrase a lot about the NBA being an entertainment product and it doesn't help anybody to, to have it this way. They can, they can fix it a lot of different ways. Yeah. Let's let's reward
1: players who, instead of wanting to get back on defense and sprint are, could just be lazy and reach out and foul. And it's also a good play to make as well. Like you don't want the lazy play to also be the play that helps you the most, right? Like, at least make people try, for God's sake.
2: What did you think of the Clippers' point guard rotation? Beverly, Jackson, Rondo all got similar time, and yeah, Rondo, well, Rondo I thought Rondo played the best. minutes in the end, yeah, but... Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, you thought Rondo played Beverly the best. Beverly
2: 17- 17... I think he did. I mean, Beverly Beverly made a couple shots, but he also, like, he, he was foul-prone as always, and then Reggie Jackson's defense was atrocious.
1: Yeah, yeah, we mentioned that he got blown by a, a few times, and especially because they went to that switching system, right? They go to Marcus Morris at center, about seven minutes left in the third after Zubats gets cooked a little bit, and that, like you have to ha- have the lineup that's going to work there also beverly frankly might be their best help defender as well and i realize yeah might it, be. and they also had beverly guarding luca which i didn't think was a great idea because luca is just a, too strong for him as much as you know but i think the idea is like oh beverly can wear him down and then we'll bring in the real big guns but i think maybe you just have to go paul george right away or even go with the go with Kawhi as well though Kawhi, i mean he definitely wore down in the playoffs last year having to guard the other team's best player and be their best scorer which he still needs to be frankly uh so yeah i mean i think reggie jackson you know obviously it doesn't look good when he's not making shots and yes he was plus 13 in this game if you didn't watch the game but and this is one of those plus 13s where he did absolutely nothing to to help them at all um I mean, I think I might try to give
2: Ibaka a little bit more of a look
1: as a closer uh, as well. But I mean, man, when Finney Smith is hitting shots, like there are not many answers uh, against Luca. When
2: Hard and Hardaway Junior had that make in Kawhi's face late, yeah, that was but He huge. looked really confident out there.
1: Yeah, five of nine and, for Hardaway from three. And,
2: and- and I mean, if you were to say Mavericks win by 10 on the road, I wouldn't have said Porzingis has to be a part of it. But you, like, we saw the importance of him at times last year when these two teams faced off. He was just a non-entity for a lot of this game, though we did have those important plays. Like. Well,
1: but that's the nice thing about Porzingis on the offensive end is he's always providing value for you with his spacing. That's fair. Right. Like like he, if you remember last year, Zubats actually was relatively effective in a drop coverage against Luka. He was at least able to affect him on some of the... Those little floaters around the lane. Now Luca did abuse him a little bit more but but I think that was kind of more getting the Zubats out on the floor. I think if you go to a more traditional drop coverage, then it it, it might that might be their just only against Luca, maybe their their best option. Um and porzingis does have his defensive foibles, but they weren't really able to exploit that too much in this game you know the clippers don't have like an incredible spread pick and roll game like they were able to get a a nice george spot up three out of a rondo pick and roll in the fourth quarter but it, outside of that you know they just didn't really have that much offensive pace moving the ball around i hoped batum could provide that that wasn't necessarily really the case either um so, I mean, Porzingis does provide value by kind of forcing you to switch everything. And then, you know, Luka can kind of go to work. And you just, you don't, if Finney Smith is hitting shots, like you just don't have anywhere to help off of. So
2: What else do you have? In, well, in, let, do you have let me see else? here.
1: It was a crazy slow game, actually. But both teams you know, had offensive ratings above well, above 120 for most of the game. Well,
2: I'll give you this uh, the stats on it 86 and 87 possessions, respectively.
1: Yeah. In a full wow. game. That is like, I mean, again, the, you know, I think the league average is like close to 100 right now. So, and part of that was due to uh, offensive rebounding. That'll obviously extend possessions. Both teams were reasonably effective on the offensive glass in this game. And the Clippers scored 103, but had a 119 offensive rating. But it, it is worth noting. And obviously, they shot 11 and 40 from three, and Dallas was 17 and 30. Right. Like that's just that in and of itself. You'd say, you know, during the meat of the game, the Clippers were right there. They're playing right with them. But then to see just the process in the last five minutes of the game, that's what really bothered me for a Clippers team that, by the way, has been terrible in the clutch all year. And obviously was terrible last year in the playoffs as well. So that was what really concerned me is just at the end of the game. That's where I'm like, oh man, this is not good for the Clippers over the meat of the game. They'll hit more threes. Dallas won't hit as many in the next game. That's probably almost certainly the case. Um, the Clippers also only had five turnovers for the whole game. That's a big part of how they're able to maintain efficiency despite actually being below average in true shooting over the course of the game.
2: Well, and, and the Mavericks don't force many turnovers, so that could end up looming large in other games in the series.
1: Yeah. They, and the Clippers don't turn it over much either. I mean, they're not a dynamic ball movement team. But that's one of the advantages of not being a dynamic ball movement team is you never turn it over either. But the problem is if they double team you, then you're not moving the ball very well either. So what would you have as the Clippers closing lineup going forward? Because obviously that was like the biggest fail time for them was the last five minutes.
2: I think I'd go Rondo, George Leonard, Morris, Batum. But I'd be open to a Ibaka, depending on what scheme you wanted to run. Well, and
1: this is something we talked about, too, was the Clippers have a lot of guys, right? Would they try Terrence Mann? No, they, they tried him for one defensive possession where they gave up an easy drive to Josh Richardson at the end of the third quarter for a layup. Uh you know Reggie Jackson has been good for them all year like he's a quality regular season player he's hit a lot of shots and he doesn't get exploited the way he did in this game defensively uh and also by the way they almost always had a real center out there behind him um you know Rondo I think he played about the right amount 24 minutes maybe uh, you could say Batum a little bit too much he was 32 minutes off the bench Marcus Morris didn't give them a lot. He was 0 for 6 from 3. No, he didn't. Um, So that might be someone they want to look at reducing his mints a little bit, but he's part of that, that versatility they have. I mean, I would just give Beverly as many minutes as he can handle and just take Jackson out of the rotation completely because I think they just need Beverly's defense. I would not put Beverly on Luka, though. I would just start out with Paul George uh, doing that. And, you know, I I do think there's something to the idea, though, that especially if they're going small, you don't want to have Kawhi or PG guarding Luka because if you're going to double team anyway, like why waste one of those guys? out there, those are probably actually your better help defenders, but they're still, you know, not amazing at protecting the rim, but they're they can fly around more on the backside more than some of these other guys can. Um yeah, but I, I mean, I think Ibaka's athleticism could be useful uh, and his rim protection. Uh, you know, I don't know how healthy he is. He was able to get into the post on Luka a couple times. He did have two blocks. He got beat by Luka one time, though, on a straight line drive to his right where he just kind of let it, gave him his right hand. Um, that seemed like to be the plan for the Clippers in isolation. Like, there was one play in the third where Marcus Morris is, like, on the hip of Luka, on the, like, just playing it sort of the opposite of Harden, late in the clock, taking away a step back. That actually worked pretty well, but it was with five seconds on the clock. Um
2: yeah, moxie Kleba, Maxi Kleba actually hitting a shot against the Clippers, but only hitting one.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a point. I mean, I might try to make Kleba hit a few more shots uh, at a higher volume, particularly if he's above the break, uh to help off him a little bit. But I mean, Luka Doncic is just really, really fucking good. I mean, that's amazing. That's, that's a, a lot of what this boils down to. And I think as good as he is as a scorer, I'm gonna live with him scoring against like pretty decent defenders. And if you have to switch, if you have to switch, obviously you want to change up the looks a little bit. They did. Didn't do that well enough at the end of the game, but I think they got to figure out a way to get a real rim protector out there because they just, they had the worst of both worlds in this game. I and mean, they did, I guess the Mavs didn't shoot that well from two, uh, but you know, Luca was five eleven from three. I don't know that you expect that to be the case. Every time uh, they ran a couple of plays to get him a, a three off a of movement and that's something they may look to do more, but I'm not, that's not exactly at the top of my scouting report right now. Maybe you would consider putting Paul George on Tim Hardaway Jr. and just say we're going to completely erase him from the game. Uh, you, you could try try to go that route uh, or try to punish him more defensively, which they did. Like they had a play late where Rondo did well to kind of get them into their offense in a way that they didn't last year, where he pointed out, out got, got a switch, got Kawhi into the post, but then they double teamed and they couldn't get anything out of that, right? So, uh, I mean, they just got to figure out a way to make Dallas pay more for these double teams on Kawhi. Um, From Dallas's perspective, you know, they got some okay-ish minutes from Nicola Melli. He actually held up again as a a switch defender, like, reasonably enough. Um, You know, I mean, I don't really like any of their big men a ton off the bench. You know, Powell played seven minutes, Colley Stein played four in the first half, Melli... So, the, the, but they can also just shift Kleba to center, and
2: yeah, Napa I mean they have they center. have seven guys. They have seven guys that I feel comfortable with who you include Brunson and Josh Richardson. Um, and so you don't need a ton from everybody else, but you need you need to have guys you know in case of situations.
1: Yeah, so uh, you definitely want to attack those guys a little bit more uh, if you're the Clippers. So. I mean, are the Clippers drawing dead in this series? No, I mean, I predict they're going to win game two. I think we'll probably have a, a long series. But I mean, they do have to figure something out a little bit more defensively. And really last year, granted this was without Porzingis on the floor, Zubats was just a huge part of what they did defensively. And Tai Lu He will default to offense. We saw that time and again in Cleveland, and that's what he did here. When he is threatened, he gets as much offense as he can, as much spacing as he can on the floor, and he tries to outscore you. And I don't know if that'll work against the Dallas Mavericks. I'm not sure that, The Clippers, despite the fact that they nearly set some records this year, I don't know that the Clippers are capable of outscoring this Dallas team at full throttle. Like, Donchich may just be that good with shooting uh, around him. But we'll see. You know, the Clippers obviously can shoot it better from three, and Dallas won't. And the Clippers potentially would have won this game if that had just changed. They're a good three-point shooting team.
2: And the Clippers just had the best free-throw shooting season of, of NBA history, and they missed six. So then, you know, miss a few. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and, and game some ended. big
1: ones late. Rondo actually missed his oh, first yeah. two free throws as a Clipper. Not that he was like, you know, getting to the line a ton in the 17 regular season games that he played. um So yeah, this w- this would be fascinating to see here uh what Tyloo is going to do in terms of personnel. And you know, it's not like Zubats or Beverly. I mean, both those guys were negative but, 13. But I you know it's tough for me to say i mean they really failed i think on both ends here i mean they gave up a 131 offensive rating so if dallas shoots a normal percentage from three maybe that drops down to 120 or so and you can also say that the clips scored 120 and didn't you know shot 28 from three so maybe they don't need to make some big changes other than just getting rid of Reggie jackson for the rotation but they just it seems like they really were searching desperately for an identity particularly defensively in this game and that they could not find one and that's always really concerning to me when you just and, and and honestly like I I'm not sure that there is something that works that well uh, uh if the maps are hitting shots like this so that that but that's just really concerning I'm just like fuck everything we try they just pick it apart immediately like none of this is working that's not a good feeling to have going into a game too
2: it is not uh let's jump to the Super memorable first game of Saturday where the Milwaukee Bucks ended up beating the Miami Heat 109-107 in overtime on a Chris Middleton mid-ranger with 0.5 seconds remaining. And you and I did this for the live show on Hot Mike. And for me, the most important takeaway from this game was that even though they've changed over some of their personnel and a lot of that was getting worse on defense to improve their offense, the Bucks' defense really did stymie Miami in some key moments.
1: Yeah, I thought that both teams really struggled to find a plan offensively in the end of regulation and overtime but I did think that the Bucs just had more places to attack overall and if you look at the this is I think much different from that Dallas Clippers game partly I, the reason I wanted to talk about that other game first is to draw the contrast with this one and I would have done this even had Milwaukee lost although you always wonder if they had lost this game whether you know it kind of could have gotten into their heads as I think maybe it did a little bit last year also but the Bucks system worked in this game. Miami was 20 of 50 from downtown. Duncan Robinson got off 7 of 13. I mean, he's a wonderful, wonderful sh- full shooter and he causes problems. They did not put Brooke Lopez out on the floor at all. They kind of stuck to their guns after all that talk of how they were going to change things up. And the Miami Heat shot 32% from two. They, one thing they did change was they put Giannis Antetokounmpo on Jimmy Butler, and Jimmy Butler was four out of 22 in this game, did get to seven of 10 from the line, at 17 points, eight assists, also had six turnovers. Um, part of the, some of those.
2: Well, yeah. and not, yeah, and, yeah go ahead. and sorry, not only was Jimmy Butler four of 22 from the field, he was two of 13 on twos. Yeah, and, and two of nine on threes. The... Like, he doesn't
1: want to shoot nine threes. They He basically felt like he needed to be doing something. And so he shot those threes. Now, a few of those misses were like, uh, you know, multiple tips on the offensive glass that just didn't go down. So th- that maybe overstates things a little bit. But uh, they caused him some problems. Bam Adebayo, I don't think it, Bam Adebayo had a single dunk today. He was four out of 15. Brook Lopez caused him major problems. Um, Bam had really flashed this improved mid-ranger this year, but was kind of working into floaters instead like you know he kind of he kind of feels a little guilty taking that because he's also like the big hub of their handoff game but i think that's a a shot that he needs to take just that open foul line jumper to make that in a half court setting at 50 percent. that's probably actually a good shot against the box i think he can get to that level in theory but clearly by the end of the game his confidence was like very much shot brooke lopez just with his great standing reach was really just distracting him on some of those jumpers and floaters um, you know, a lot of people would say, okay, yeah, the Bucs were 5 out of 31 from 3. Dean Maniette had on Twitter their worst 3-point shooting percentage since 2018, which was also against Miami in which they also won incidentally. They shot 16% from 3. Now, 31 attempts, that's actually a pretty low number in an overtime game. But nonetheless, the Bucks were one of the better 3-point shooting teams this year. They improved that. They got very good looks from good shooters uh, throughout the, the course of the game that just did not go down. But... But then the Heat would say, "Well, okay, but uh, you know, but Butler and Bam, they were they were a combined eight out of thirty-seven. So you know, it's, it evens out. But that's not like." They were, those guys weren't missing open shots right like they'll shoot better than eight out of 37 i will grant you that but those guys were not getting good shots and so something will probably need to change for that to happen whether it's them playing better finding something else schematically trying to get them better matchups whatever it is but as of right now i think it's much more miami that's going to be going into game two saying we need to find something different that's going to work as opposed to the box when
2: well, there are a couple different reasons for that beyond the ones that you- mentioned one the only two members of the heat that i thought had a had good offensive games were duncan robinson and and i think a lot of what duncan robinson did is sustainable whether he makes seven of those 13 shots or maybe in certain cases eight or nine or in certain cases five that's there and then Drogic, i thought had a had a nice game not an insane one but had a nice game He was their their best on ball career 25
1: points 10 of 17 5 of 10 uh from 3 he and robinson combined but, for 12 of their 23s
2: but while miami has a deep team there are a lot of guys who looked out of place in this i thought that Trevor Riza other than a huge three late he, he's not as stout as jay crowder which makes him a challenging fit to guard giannis antetokounmpo that was a real challenge in this one kendrick Nunn just didn't really do much for me kind of forced a couple shots did have a couple a couple of made threes when they were paying attention to other guys but didn't didn't really cause a lot of churn. Iguadala looked old. And they got some solid minutes from Dwayne Deadman, but I mean, you're not going to get more from Dwayne Deadman than probably like 10 solid minutes. And that's totally fine. I mean, for a guy who got off the scrap heap. So Tyler Hero probably needs to step up. Butler, I mean, he has a lot to do and he's going to have, he has some very challenging ways to do it. I- but I think a lot of it will have to be, you know, trying to make Giannis navigate screens, trying to come up with different approaches rather than just doing the same thing and hoping it works better.
1: Yeah, I mean, be- going with Giannis. And P.J. Tucker having every single Jimmy Butler minute be guarded by those guys, I I thought was pretty good. And yeah, Giannis does not get through screens that well. We'll talk in great detail about the the end of the game, obviously. Um, So... And they tried to ISO Butler against P.J. Tucker a couple of times. P.J. Tucker, that's not an advantage matchup for the Heat either. You know, and Butler, he didn't shoot it as well as he did. Like, he was, he was above his head shooting the ball compared to the regular season last year. And, yeah, you can say, hey, that's, you know, Magic Jimmy Butler in the playoffs. And, and I mean, they showed... Uh, that graphic that he's six for nine on game tying or game winning shots uh, in the playoffs, which is an unbelievable number considering the difficulty that those shots generally have at, at that point in the game. So now the one exception, obviously, Danny, to my statement about Miami feeling more like they're searching for something than the Bucks, it would be Giannis' performance.
2: Yeah, and Giannis, an inefficient offensive game for him. When you think about, it, he had more field goal attempts than points, ten to twenty-seven, and for twenty-six points. But also that six to thirteen from the free throw line. Five. five and well, I thought that yeah, too. five turnovers. Well, I thought that his defense was totally fine. I thought that you know, and that was a big part of the. Season. But offensively, he had a couple of had a couple of fouls where he tried to go through guys without a lot of craft. He tried to make the jump shot happen, and it didn't take. And had to deal with and, and it's interesting because I didn't think like Bam out of bio had a particularly great game, but I thought the Heat in general, they you know, they have a good approach against Giannis, they've defended him well in the past. And generally speaking, it was you know, is the other guy stepping up. However, you know, it's not like Middleton or Drew Holiday shot the lights out. They they did fine, they did well, but nothing too crazy.
1: So here's the thing with Giannis ten of fourteen at the rim, oh for thirteen away from the rim. Now, some of those were closer shots. Like, I actually like the one that he has a pull-up at the end of the third quarter Uh, that just didn't go down, like, where he actually, like, took a hard dribble and just, like, rose up like he was actually shooting that with confidence at the end of the quarter. Um, You know, and, and there's a few of these that he's going to have to take that are kind of like those fadeaways. Uh, They ran that play for him all the time where they get him the ball near the left elbow, and he tries to rip through and drive hard left, but uh, the Heat were ready for that after... Uh he got one quick dunk with that with the left hand so that that's one that's probably not going to work to catch him by surprise anymore but i think there's a, a pretty easy solution and that's just that Giannis just doesn't need to create with the ball in his hands in this series and because i think they have other advantages elsewhere they had chris middleton guarded by duncan robinson which was the case at the end of the game you know that's they've they've got that they've got Drew Holiday guarded by Dragic uh you know i think they they can go to that more and they can use him as a roller in pick and roll the one thing i didn't like as much is having Giannis off the ball in the dunker spot and setting the screen with Brooke Lopez, because then Bam, especially when Bam was guarding Giannis, Bam was able to break up a lot of those plays to the role man because he was already on Giannis. Like if they got the switch, they try to get Lopez in the post, Bam would come over and break that up. Um, So, I mean, or even, like, kind of stationing Giannis, like, not necessarily in the dunker spot, but just, like, you know, a little bit higher up so he can kind of get a running start to run in if uh, his man goes to help. Uh, You know, that could be something that they could try. But I think just having him involved in the action, rolling downhill, uh, sucking the defense in, opening up the backside, uh, but... You know, still a problem for the Bucs was their passing in this game. Like Drew Holiday, I thought in particular, had a number of plays where he just missed guys. Giannis had a number of plays where he just missed guys. Again, like there was one fast break where he could have just thrown it right to Drew Holiday for a layup, and instead he missed the layup. The heat came down and scored immediately on the other other end after Giannis like fell into the seats um Drew had a bunch of times when they ran pick and pop and he just like couldn't get the ball to the pop man quickly enough and allowed the a, a rotation to happen um so the bucks are not a great passing team you know other than Chris Middleton he's really the only guy that you think of as a great passer holiday and Giannis I would consider capable passers uh, but I, I i do think the bucks have like a few more matchups to exploit whereas Miami you've got Dragic. you know I think even more pick and roll for him particularly at the end of the game would be useful and uh you know even running even more plays than they did for Duncan Robinson although Chris Middleton I think considering that he basically got no help at any time on a screen that was set by the center I thought Chris Middleton did a pretty good job honestly to limit Duncan Robinson to 13 shot attempts
2: yeah he was rough in the first like five minutes yeah. of the game but after that I think he settled yeah, down. yeah
1: Robinson actually scored the first nine points for the heat in well, and,
2: one. and one of the other important. Or the other important takeaways of this game, I mean, we'll see how if it persists, is you and I have been skeptical of some of the additions John Horst made on the edge of the periphery of the rotation, most notably Bobby Portis and Bryn Forbes, and originally DJ Augustine, but he got traded as playoff players. And the Heat weren't really able to exploit Portis when he was on the floor defensively. You know, the, the Bucks were outscored in his minutes, but that's not a huge surprise. And then Bryn Forbes, n- not really a ton there either. And and he can hit shots. He didn't hit his threes in this game, but if those guys can play even 10 minutes each, makes a world of difference for the Bucs.
1: Yeah, I think so. And they can extend P.J. Tucker's minutes some as well. I thought it was interesting that they did not have Tucker out there at the end of the game. And I thought the best... Really, I mean, the only two things that worked to get decent looks for Miami were Robinson coming off of pin downs. Um, and those can be kind of risky, too, because if they don't work, then you've wasted a bunch of the possession and you don't have anything going, really. Like you haven't you kind of haven't started yet. Now, they did have one play where, and this is actually the play where Butler tied it with that unbelievable floater. Uh, they threw it into Butler all the way on the weak side, had Robinson come over off a screen from Ariza on the weak side to try to get a three to walk off because they were down two at the time. And Middleton did a great job of getting through that, but then Butler was in a position where he was able to attack on acupo one-on-one. Giannis, I thought, did not play great individual defense in that play, but still Butler. Like, right foot floater with Giannis trailing him and Brooke Lopez coming over, and it just went off the backboard and curled around to, to tie it. I mean, that was an incredible shot by him. But, you know, one of the few times that he got any kind of clean penetration in that game so uh and then the other thing that worked okay was involving Dante DiVincenzo in screening action because they didn't want to switch Giannis is not a good on ball he's just not that experienced as an on ball defender against pick and roll and so Giannis isn't really directing the ball to a side they're switching the angle of the screen that enabled Butler to get downhill at one point a couple of times that was really some of the best drives and then they're able to force help and uh kick out in those situations or actually let Butler or attack someone and get to the foul line i think one of those uh hard fouls from lopez uh, occurred in that situation when he landed hard on his butt so that was something i would go back to more but it, and would the bucks go with pj tucker instead of DiVincenzo? you know brooke lopez played well i thought like i don't know that i would want to take him off the floor until you really you know can't defend with him out there so that's interesting i mean i probably would have gone with tucker rather than divincenzo but divincenzo can play above the break which tucker just has to kind of stand in the corner and he's not a a great shooter so that's another concern for the bucks as well like i I mean the bucks were defending well enough in this game i think even with that kind of one weak point they still had enough room protection that they didn't get abused um Now, it was a little unfortunate for Milwaukee that they couldn't hit a free throw. I mean, that's the other thing to remember is they're 20 of 33 from the line, 60%. And particularly at the end of the game, I mean, they're up four and Giannis missed a ton of free throws.
2: And in one case, didn't attempt the free throw. <laughs> I mean, that was unbelievable.
1: We got asked on the NBA cast, what are the odds that Giannis actually gets called for a 10 second violation? And I said literally 0%. I think you said 2%. And then it happened like maybe five minutes in real time later. I was like, has he ever been called? I was like, my thought was like, he's never been called for in his career. I would. Th- I w- wouldn't surprise if he's literally never been called for that before in his career until right now.
2: Hollinger timed it at 11 seconds and they asked Giannis if he got a warning and he said he didn't remember. So it's possible that he did. Apparently, Karan Butler was going crazy about it. And and that's a rule in the books. I It's a, it's a very surprising time to start enforcing it. Yeah, but
1: No, it reminds me of no. uh, 1996. The Sonics versus the Jazz was a seven-game series and Carl Malone, another strong power forward with a history of disappointing in the playoffs who took his sweet time at the line the fans in Seattle would actually count to 10 maybe not you know perfectly in time with a 10 second shot a uh, 10 second timer but they would just all count out loud as Carl was like going through his routine I don't think he ever actually got called for it but that was, that was like something that they tried to like focus on and the fans were yelling about but I can't believe, especially the, at home, that that happened. I mean, that's just insane. I, I, we
2: might we might hear that in we might hear that in Miami in a couple days. It wouldn't surprise me.
1: Uh, yeah, the the they're going to be basically nearly at full capacity, which is awesome to hear. Um, yeah, so Giannis missed a couple of free Now Butler missed a huge free throw in the last minute as well. Yeah, would would have given the, yeah, heat the lead. Yeah, that would have put him up. Uh, Giannis missed a, a pretty easy layup. Um, the heat totally blew it tied or or down one with 34.3 left two timeouts remaining. They did not take a timeout, which you and I were both going crazy about uh, on the broadcast 34 seconds left. They could have at least tried to get the two for one. If they had advanced the ball, that's it. That is the time to use your timeout when you can affect possession like that. As it turned out, uh, because Giannis missed the second free throw, they were able to get another chance to tie, but it would have been nice to, for them to not have to foul. Um, there was that crazy jump ball uh, with 13 seconds left, which was Dragic against Chris Middleton and Butler. You knew exactly what he was going to try and do because the Bucks had set up the place where they had, where Middleton had to tip it, and Butler just ran to that spot, and Brooke Lopez just barely got a hand on it to tip it to Giannis and then they just let four seconds run off the clock uh before they fouled Giannis I mean they should have fouled Giannis immediately because he's the bad free throw shooter uh and of course Giannis only made one out of two and then Butler had that that incredible tying play um anything else that stuck out about like the very end of this one and that Dragic three off the bam offensive rebound at the end that was fantastic uh Drew's push in transition and layup to push it to three uh, under a minute remaining after duncan robinson missed the three that duncan robinson three in ot like going to his left from just like
2: oh that was that was bananas yeah
1: i mean that was insane like,
2: like middleton middleton kind of rotated got got pretty much out there he just went fuck it let me do that oh the uh, the flagrant foul call on on Duncan yeah Robinson, and Middleton
1: only hits which one ended out of up two, yeah. which en-
2: which Mid- Middleton is one out of two and then DiVincenzo misses a layup so it's a one point trip down the floor instead of potentially four yeah. plus
1: they actually called a play for DiVincenzo in overtime to come off a screen I think that was that play actually where he missed the layup that was uh, a little surprising Brooke Lopez was huge in the OT uh, as well like he got a a. De- he post up and drew a foul he had a huge tip to tie it when the heat were up actually um so I mean I, I think the other thing I would try to really look at as an adjustment for the heat is just more Goran Dragic pick and roll in OT less Jimmy Butler because Dragic has that mid-range game which Butler is was struggling with and the Bucks barricade the rim Wait, so cause
2: Well, because Dragic can't and because Dragic can just pull that right. shot if he has to. Like, like Jimmy Butler, something has to happen for him to get a good look.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's got to turn the corner and get downhill. And, you know, I think he's able to do that in the small, small pick and roll. But then you still got all those rim protectors there waiting for you. Um, anything in terms of, like, player usage uh, for the heat that stuck out to you? I, I think they did a pretty darn good job in this game, especially considering that Dragic probably can't play that many minutes right now.
2: Yeah, I didn't. I mean, we'll we'll see how they want to handle the starting five and, and Dragic's ideal role, because something they could do is have Dragic like start the game, get into a little bit of a rhythm and then pull him early and have him play with the second unit, depending on how they want to do it there that 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 is a potential because i think you definitely want dragich on the floor when butler is off yeah um but i think you could probably you could manage that a couple of different ways because he played basically did he play the entire fourth quarter i mean he, i think when, i don't he know, he know if he even
1: play? went out after he came in in the third he might he might have played like the last i don't know like 20 minutes of the game um but he only played 13 minutes in the first so yeah he played 22 minutes in the second half in overtime so that was uh yeah i think he basically just came in with five minutes left in the third and never left at that point the <laughs> um you know hero had played well down the end of the season but it was 0, 5, oh, or two. Oh
2: no so no, yeah. day sat for 13 seconds of oh game yeah time i think they probably put the like
1: iguodala in for a defensive possession for him yeah. or something maybe that's what
2: it was uh yeah it was i'm, I'm, I'm watching i'm looking through the the splits the very end yeah but ahead, no i sorry. mean But no, I mean, I think that Miami, one of the challenges is just that they don't have that many guys who can generate good shots for themselves and others. Like that's just, it's, they have a wonderful defense. They have all these, all these talented players and they have guys who can convert some of the opportunities that are created, but Maybe you put it in Bam's hands a little bit more and do some do some DHO to DHO stuff. Oh, they did have that really fun one where it was like kind of like a, a really short DHO at the free throw line, and Drew Holiday got completely lost and Dragic got an open open free throw line jumper. So things like that. Maybe incorporate those a little more often.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see Bam as a ball handler a little bit more. You know I, I still think that his isolation game is underrated. I would probably even try to get Bam matched up with more of his minutes when low. Lopez is out of the game. And, you know, I think he could work one on one against Bobby Portis pretty well and and maybe force some help. Uh, also just kind of put him in the goal or you could even run a uh, you know a, a pick with him by for him by Duncan Robinson and then uh, have Robinson pop out you know some stuff like that to get Bam going I mean they need him to obviously score better than he did in this game get some easier looks as well it, the Bucks with Bobby Portis you know we really worried about his defense but they're able to cover up for him well enough by just having him get further out on the floor in pick and roll The Heat weren't able to really move the ball and take advantage that's with some of those second units out there with like Iguodala, who's just like not really much of a scoring threat at this point, Deadman, it, not guys who are just going to kill that strategy. So I think that's something that they could look at a, a little bit more is like find find some ways to take advantage of, of Bobby Portis to, to some degree. I don't think, I don't know if the Bucks did any PJ Tucker at center at all. I think it was basically Lopez and Portis either Lopez or Forza right. nearly the entire time. They might have done like a couple of minutes uh with Tucker at center. And that's something that they maybe have in their back pocket. I did think that the Bucks screwed up their switching like that huge Ariza three at the end of regulation. That took it from four to one and kind of got Miami back into, into contact late, under two minutes. That was due to a screwed up switch where Holiday and DiVincenzo just should have switched. It was like Ariza and like Dragic or something. And Holiday just ran with Dragic and Ariza just got a wide open corner three as a result of that. And I was, you know, the, the Bucks weren't entirely tight with their switching, but uh, in some of the off ball stuff, they also had. Having Middleton on Duncan Robinson was useful because then when Robinson would screen for Butler, they could just switch that and have Middleton, who's still a credible defender on Butler. You, you want to talk about the uh, that crazy like last 20 seconds or so after Dragic hit the three? Uh, sure. Because that was... Uh, I mean, were, were you thinking like I was that... Like, why would they have Brooke Lopez come up and set a screen there?
2: Oh, yeah. I was going completely crazy because they already had Duncan, like Miami had Duncan Robinson on Chris Middleton. That is exactly the matchup that you want as the Bucks and bringing a different defender, and I believe it was Ariza, bring a different defender into the play. But then what, what Chris Middleton did was basically drive into Duncan Robinson and basically choose him as the defender again <laughs> and gets into the space and hits that 20-footer. And
1: no shade on Duncan Robinson. Like He got a really nice contest on that without fouling, and sure. that was a very difficult shot. But, it, I mean, especially when you're just trying to run the time down, to have that matchup now it was a great job by Bud not calling timeout. To because that would have sure. allowed the Heat and, and they should really continue that throughout the series because the Heat, uh with Dragic and Robinson are very much an offense defense style team. They'll get Iguadala in the game and they can throw out just a, a bulletproof defensive unit. And but yeah, I didn't
2: Can they get Derek Jones Jr. back since Portland's not using him? Just a <laughs> <to> swap program? <sighs>
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe Portland will end up using him. Uh, it, it's they that bench. Uh, we, we'll see that later tonight. We're recording this actually after the first two games, but yeah, that was a pretty awesome shot by chris middleton and you know maybe they're worried that they're just gonna straight double team middleton right as the as time ran down but yeah i would have just preferred middleton going out robinson he had torched him pretty good earlier in the game as well um drew holiday i thought that just trying to get him in a situation where he can attack more from the side of the floor and use his size when he's up top it's just hard for him to overpower the likes of Dragic or robinson or tyler hero so you know running just in transit transition a quick, you know, just like step up 21 type of screen uh, with, whoever hero or, or Dragic is guarding on the right side of the floor and then let holiday work into the lane where he can finish with his left hand or draw help and and kick out you know we didn't really see much of that um holiday did have two ridiculous steals on Dragic, although he threw one of them right back in bounds for a turnover that resulted in an and one
2: <laughs> yeah he basically threw it at bam at bio and bam gets the Bam gets the finish
1: i do think there's more of a role for kendrick nunn to play uh with his mid-ranger like that's a Shot that he can make that's going to be open for them attacking Lopez in pick and roll. Um, I mean, the other thing that changed from last year: Giannis 45 minutes, Middleton 45 minutes. You know, they didn't fuck around. Pat Connaughton 10 minutes. You know, they didn't fuck around with anybody off the bench. Nobody played more than 18 minutes, and and this was an overtime. Right, I mean, game. but they probably you know game one last year Giannis played 36 minutes, and uh, so yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of what ways there are for Miami to get Butler more involved and i think just more pick and roll for him rather than iso i mean they're just or, or you just the uh, start off with the pick and roll with divincenzo's man just to kind of get him going downhill get penetration let him kick out let him get on top of the rim quickly draw some of those fouls on lopez for example uh, i think that would be a, a good adjustment other than that you know i don't see a ton of things that really miami can do right like i mean that's they shot 40 percent from three on super high volume and they still just could not score in this game and and they'll shoot better on long twos probably they won't shoot as well on threes so that's probably get, gonna make things worse they did do a great job in transition defense as they always do uh, against the bucks the bucks really weren't uh, only had 12 fast break points and very few of those came late other than just off of like straight turnover runouts like that holiday play uh, in OT so yeah I mean I think uh, ultimately I feel pretty good about this as the Bucks. like to shoot five at 31 from three 20 at 33 from the line and to still win and just to control Miami this much defensively um, and, and Miami's kind of lack of a stretch five I think that actually hurt them a, a little bit like they hilariously they actually missed Kelly Olenek uh, in this game
2: yeah I mean oh olenic only played 50 minutes in their series last year but they were very impactful 50
1: yeah he had like some nice runs just kind of messing with so i like honestly as of now i we all said hey they got to get a a more of a plan here brooke lopez Mm -hmm. they can't get killed by duncan robinson and they did get killed by duncan robinson but they did enough to hurt him on the other end and he and dragic were the only heat players who did anything and so and those guys combined for 12 out of 23 from three and the Heat still couldn't score. So I expect this to continue to be a defensive series, but I expect that the Bucs have more of an opportunity to score well because it was just the Bucs missing threes, like 57% from two. That's fine for the Bucs um and both teams had 17 turnovers which i mean this was just an incredibly intense battle uh between two tough teams and, and so you know if it's close down the end it can be anyone's game you know i still kind of trust the heats clutch dna maybe a little bit more than the bucks but uh this is a close game i expect the buck it's just easier to me for the bucks to improve their performance just by hitting some shots and free throws whereas miami it's not nearly as simple for them uh, as far as playing better offensively agreed Let's get to the evening games on Saturday. Start with Portland and Denver. And my biggest takeaway here in what was a 123-109 Portland victory, they largely controlled the fourth quarter, went on a little run late in the third, uh, fueled by, uh, of course, Damian Lillard. My biggest takeaway here was that Generally, although Jokic and Damian Lillard are both awesome offensive players, and I think that Jokic is a little bit better of an offensive player than Damian Lillard, that because of what these two teams have around these guys... And also perhaps due to some of the deficiencies of Jokic himself defensively, that Portland just has slightly more of an answer for Jokic than Denver has for Dame Lillard. And that to me, I I think is going to be the big difference. And I, I really loved Portland's plan against Jokic in this game
2: well I'll, I'll let you I'll let you start there without how you would describe their plan
1: so 34 points for Nikola Jokic 14 of 27 from the field and Jokic is shooting you know, 14 of 27 for the field that's a little bit below his normal efficiency and Jokic was six for six around the basket two of seven from floater range he could usually be a little better there and then he was six out of 14 on jumpers three of seven from three but the flashing red number in this game that I think tells the story, but more than anything, is one assist for Nikola Jokic. And Jokic has made awesome strides as a scorer this season. That's what's gotten him to MVP level. I think it's made him potentially the best offensive player in the game where he was sort of in a group maybe a little bit below the best before the season during the regular season and Jokic was definitely he attacked he took 27 shots like that's what he needs to do for this team but to only have one assist and if you just look at where his shots came from the other thing too only three of four from the foul line which again they've complained for a long time that he doesn't get fouled that much but between Yusuf Nurkic and Ennis Kanter who's guarded him in the post in the playoffs before they have guys who aren't going to just get completely trucked by jokic where it's a layup or a foul every time and so you see from that shot distribution 21 of those 27 shots are away from the rim and they did that without having a crazy double team and some of those shots at the rim were off a offensive rebounds where the nuggets were killing them in the first quarter and so the problem for Jokic is just he's gonna have to initiate nearly everything for this team because Compazzo and Austin Rivers those guys combined for 14 points the most points scored by a guard was 10 points by Monte Morris in 22 minutes I don't know whether he's on a minutes limit still coming back from that hamstring or what but he's they just don't have anyone what made the Jokic and Murray duo so deadly was you had to respect Jamal Murray, right? Not only are you guarding Nikola Jokic, but you got to your center has to worry about Jamal Murray coming off of those handoffs. And those guys have seen everything. They can attack every possible coverage. And that can get Jokic wide open pick and pops. It can get Jokic coming down the lane with help coming over where he can make a decision and set up his teammates. And so Portland, with very few exceptions, did not double Jokic in the post. And they said, all right, Nikola, you're just going to have to beat us posting up. And he was effective at that. He had an efficient-ish game, you know, hit some threes. But it wasn't dominating enough to make up for what this really, really good Portland offense can do to a mediocre Denver defense on the other end of the floor.
2: One useful piece of context, not not that I disagree with with what you're saying, I, I do agree with it. From Royce Young, is that Jokic's teammates shot one for ten off of passes from him. So if you want to call yeah. it potential, but,
1: but but even yeah, but even ten is potential, 10 potential assists assist is, is low. very low for him. Yeah. yeah.
2: Whereas Lillard had fifteen potential assists, thirteen of which became actual assists. Because his teammates were absolutely molten yeah. from there, but the point that you're the point that you're kind of getting towards is a really interesting one, which is I think back to you know like there was a strategy that I advocated for the Heat to do against Dirk Nowitzki back in the 2011, 2011 Finals, finals yeah. where you can you know he'll get his and you'll you'll get that, but that if especially if if you have an offense as talented as Portland's, and Portland in this game put up a completely ridiculous 135.2 offensive rating, and and yeah, that's probably not going to continue throughout the series they're probably not going to shoot 19 of 40 on threes every night but if the idea is jokic is going to get his these other guards can't really create enough and like that 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 gives us a fighting chance i think that the blazers tact is is sound
1: no i I think that's right and yeah michael porter jr one of 10 from three that's not gonna happen he's one of the best three-point shooters statistically uh, of the last five years and he takes hard shots too wait, he wait, took can hard I, shots I, in this game can yeah. i
2: see can i, t- can I t- talk for a second about like a border shot chart because it's so crazy oh please yeah eight of eight in the restricted area three of three from mid-range and then one for 10 from three. And I, I mean, his threes were, some of them were on the tougher side, especially in those minutes when he plays without Jokic. And there's a lot on MPJ's shoulders during that time, even though it's not like Portland has great defenders for the most part out there. But I mean, Porter Jr., so he did the efficient stuff and he had some nice finishes around the basket, also had two block shots. But it's going, to be, it's going to be a challenge for the Nuggets to get the metric ton of clean looks that they're going to need because Portland, that was the other thing for me. Portland was generating so many good, Good shots. For capable shooter
1: yeah and those capable shooters again they're not going to go 19 of 40 from three sure but you know the Blazers bench really held up against that more defensively focused Nuggets bench and you know Carmelo got off early with 12 points in the first quarter in five minutes in the first quarter Simons was reigning it in four of five from downtown he had 14 points actually they played 23 minutes uh, of him in this game and they didn't have to go too many minutes uh, for their main guys but then the 13 of for Dame Lillard and that is is a good note from Royce Young that you know 13 out of 15 like teammates generally aren't going to shoot that on your passes but Dame had seven assists just in the first quarter and some of those were to Carmelo when he was raining fire from the outside and you know Lillard himself was was 10 out of 25 but 5 of 12 from 3 but he really just completely controlled the game because they're the Nuggets had to get if they didn't get two on the ball, then Dame Lillard was going to get an open three. Uh, and Compato tried gamely, but it's just not only is it is it that he it can kind of be figured out a little bit by guys, but he's just too small. And it, even guys like Steph and Dame can use their bodies to create separation against him. But it's also just in a starting role. You know, if you're playing that way in FIBA and you're playing that way in you know two games a week at the most. And you're playing 20 minutes a game. I know. By the way, you don't have Dame Lillard there either, and they're not the sole focus of the offense. Isn't to get Dame Lillard the ball in every possession. You can play that way in FIBA. It's really hard to do that over 32 minutes at NBA playoff type of intensity. And Capazzo, I mean, he he tries really, really hard, but he's just he's not gonna be able to get through every on ball screen. Like that's just not possible in today's NBA, particularly with some of the liberties that are given with screening. And then Dame Lillard, yeah, go ahead.
2: Well, one of the other fascinating dynamics of this game was something we haven't seen from the Blazers very much this year, which is Damian Lillard post-ups.
1: Yeah, that that was huge too. He is, according to Synergy, he finished five possessions out of the post and did it with 11 points. And so I think they maybe did it four times. Uh, actually, three was, was all that I saw. So just to, just like a little thing in transition, if he's uh, Compazzo's guarding him under the basket, uh. Try to post up a little bit, and he drew two fouls, one on kapazzo and one on Monte Morris, and then one where Campazzo went flying, trying to front him in the post, and Dame just stepped back and, and hit an easy three uh, with nobody on him. So that was a wrinkle that they they brought out. I mean, they've also got Marcus Howard as well. Like that, He's actually able to guard Dame Lillard in the post either. You know, Rivers is really probably the only guy, and they were, uh, needed Rivers who, I mean, they're starting Kapazzo and Rivers, right? Like, okay, rotation players, maybe in a 10 or 15 minutes per game roll, but 32 and 33 minutes, The playoffs is a lot. Um, So then you know Jokic if he tried to get up on the ball uh he got blown by by Dame and got blown by by CJ a bunch of times in the first quarter the the first half really for Jokic was like 2020 playoffs against the Jazz first four games type of level um and there's no Gary Harris coming to kind of bail them out and uh so Dame was getting to the rim he would shoot the three or a lot of times too if they tried to bring the guy up then he's throwing the perfect pocket pass to Nurkic uh, who was able to make some plays Nurkic had five assists and had a ridiculous dunk all over Aaron Gordon just completely ended him uh shades of what Derek White did to Paul Millsap two years ago uh same end of the court I believe and so this Blazers' offense was just uh, fantastic. Like they didn't even re- Norman Powell didn't really get going. Covington didn't really do much. But the Nuggets, I, I think, you know, the next step for the Nuggets probably is going to have to be: all right, we need Norman Powell and Robert Covington shooting twenty threes next time. Like we're just going to bring our wings in that far, and we're going to make these guys make shots, particularly well, and, Covington.
2: And that's a different a different calculus than it was when Al Fuka Minu and Maurice Harkless occupied the yes. same spaces. Yes. And that's a part of the bet that Neil O'Shea made with this Blazers team, and it's a bet that could look really good in this series. I mean, that, that they have so many threats, and you could see it in some of those ancillary players on the bench. Anthony Simons, his looks were overwhelmingly just wide, wide open. Mellows were clean, a lot of those created by Damian Lillard. And I also thought it was interesting that Lillard, you know, his jump shot was absolutely falling in this one. He was 5 for 12 from 3, and if you want to add on top of that, 3 for 4 from range. But he was only 2 for 9 in the paint, but part of that is because some of the time he was seeing bodies in the paint, he was just making the right pass and getting it to other guys.
1: Yeah, there were a few times when he kind of got sent flying and he didn't have a very good defensive game either. No, he did not. Uh, to to be clear, particularly in the second quarter. Um so I, I, you know, I think the like there's things they can try, but like the things that they're going to try are just, okay, let's just hope that this guy doesn't beat us as opposed to like really affirmatively being able to stop people. I thought like Michael Porter Jr. had like an okay defensive game. Aaron Gordon had an okay defensive game, but they, they kind of had their four balls too. Like they would go after those guys and, in drag screens and transition every once in a while and then kind of catch them napping Porter Jr. I thought was okay switching on to Dame. Yeah, I
2: I thought Porter Jr. and sometimes did a better job on Lillard than he did on Carmelo, where he got lost a couple times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, Denver can maybe shoot better than 11-36-3, but they're not a good three-point shooting team. I mean, really, only Porter Jr., would you say, is a good three-point shooter. You know, some of these guys can make them with time and space, but they're not, you know, movement shooters or guys who are going to shoot over people. I mean, I would consider everyone else on this team to really be a below average three-point shooter for their position. And that's a part of
2: why they really miss like Will Barton and some of the other guys that are out.
1: Yeah. And perhaps Barton could return for the hamstring, but you would imagine he'll be on some type of a minutes limit. Maybe you could give them a little bit of a buzz on that second unit, though. Will's not really a great pick and roll ball handler either. You know, that's kind of, he's been more of a spot up shooter uh, and he tried pick and roll ball handling, but the stats really have not been good on that either. So,
2: well, and uh, one, one yeah. other big challenge for the Nuggets in terms of potentially winning this series is that you think about the other ways that you can slow down a potent offense. One of them would be forcing turnovers. Well, the Nuggets did force a fair amount this year, but Portland turned the ball over the least as a proportion of possessions in the entire NBA. That was actually a stat I used at one point in a awards pod of like the monthly trends, but they ended up at 11.2%, actually ahead of the Spurs, 11.3. And when you watch Denver, you don't really see how they're going to force that many turnovers and especially that many live ball yeah Campazzo kind of ripped Lillard once and and Millsap got one but they're not they're not really going to do a ton of that maybe the Nuggets can get some blocks they, as they did in this one but forcing turnovers really getting out getting out in transition via live ball turnovers is going to be difficult for Denver
1: yeah and Portland correct me if I'm wrong here I think they had the lowest percentage of assisted baskets basically this year because Damon, CJ are just shooting a ton of threes off the dribble uh and so is Simons and Carmelo's doing his ISO stuff but they had 29 assists on 43 field goals and if portland is getting more assists than denver in this game like denver's in trouble they only had 22 assists on 47 field goals um, Denver started off killing them in the offensive glass. They got six out of their first nine missed shots as offensive rebounds, but then that calmed down and they finished with 11 offensive rebounds, and uh, the Blazers had 10. So that wasn't really a huge disparity in the end. And, you know, they could trunk up things with some other stuff too. Maybe they could go Jokic on Robert Covington and then try to put Gordon on Dame, and you put, uh, Porter on Yusuf Nurkic and see if you can just switch that action then and and like you know deal with Robert Covington hitting some threes over Jokic um you know you could put Austin Rivers into that too on CJ and then you could switch there and you know deal with rivers on Nurkic, or then after the pick and roll you could try to switch behind the play put Jokic onto Nurkic after he rolls to the basket you know that might be something they could look at i mean denver doesn't really play much zone uh so i, I don't think that's really an option either and you can just you know set a screen on the guy at the top of the two three zone and dame alert's wide open for a three so i don't think that's a panacea for denver either although people like to suggest that at times so uh yeah, I don't really see. Uh, you know, maybe you could go bigger, and you could put port. Maybe that's what they could consider. They could go Porter at the at the two, and start Millsap, and just to get some more size uh, on the floor, and, to and some more, more a, higher propor- a higher
2: proportion of your best players too.
1: Yeah, and but then you've got the problem, and, and you, I guess you're just doing trying to do more switching there too. Maybe maybe you have Millsap guard Yusuf Nurkic. And, you know, then he can do some switching because like, you don't, you're not really going to be able to get over a screen with Porter Jr. Gar- or, I mean, maybe Gordon would guard CJ and they put Rivers on Dame. Um, or, I mean, they probably still need a point guard, though, so Compazzo would probably have to still start. Uh, Maybe you could go with Morris in the starting lineup. They could consider that. I don't think Morris is any better than Compazzo, though, uh, honestly. Like, Morris can is a little more juice as like a scorer on floaters and stuff, but still not the kind of guy who's going to have the gravity as a ball handler that can give them the ball to Jokic on the move and sp- space. So, I mean, there's some things they could try, I think, uh, just because their guards really are not that good. And, uh, Marcus Howard is, is a nice story, but you know, when he tried to come over and, and help out on a side pick and roll and he was, uh, you know, just about four feet too low to stop Yus- Yusuf Nurkic from dunking, yeah. that kind of encapsulated that some of the issues that you have, you can't play him and kapazzo together, especially cause CJ too. I mean, he'll, a small guy like that, like CJ will just create a ton of space uh, on him. I don't think Morris can guard CJ either it's really only rivers among their guards who can guard cj so there are just a ton of matchup issues right now and i'm not saying denver is totally dead right now i mean obviously it would have been nice if they could have won some of these games won the game one and uh you know held serve at home um and you know they'll probably win game two and they're gonna win games in this series like that's gonna happen but it does kind of feel like they win game two lose the two in portland like then and this maybe ends up being portland in six like that's kind of how this seems to be trending right now because i just don't see what the answers are and also i was this thing i think dame lillard is a better player now than he was two years ago in terms of just his ability to control a game and the pick and roll and just like dicing up every coverage and and denver just has nobody who can make him uncomfortable
2: yeah the the personnel is is a real challenge here and I, I bring this up a fair amount when we're starting the playoffs, but a reminder that when a team loses game one, they have to win four of six. Like, that yeah. that's thats what happens. And could Denver do it? Sure. I, it is plausible, but I wouldn't expect it. And this is coming from somebody who picked Denver to win the series. And it's... A, well,
1: well, so let me ask you then. So this, what has changed your opinion about this series after this first game?
2: I think I hadn't fully processed how limited Denver's guard rotation was. And that and I knew that was going to be a problem against Portland, but Campazzo, Rivers, Monte Morris, Marcus Howard, like that's just not enough. And s- it's even hard like when you think about where Portland wants things to have a center who could clean that all up and of course Denver doesn't have that center and I thought that and they will I think Denver's offense will look better in subsequent games especially when they make a higher proportion of their shots but I don't think they're going to get to the line a ton I, I don't think as you said they're going to drill just a, an absolute ton of threes and there will be games where the offensive rebounds are there so it's just like the, I, the concept of how they're going to consistently win games in the series it just isn't quite what I thought I thought oh you know they'll have these advantages at the forward spots and and mpj can go off and you know he'll he had 25 on 21 shots tonight but i think he could still be more efficient because he didn't make his threes but the idea that they're going to do that every time and and basically you have to expect unless portland misses a ton of shots that denver's going to have to kill it offensively to have a shot
1: yeah i just don't see how denver is gonna significantly slow down this blazer's offense so i think what i would do my adjustment would be i might even bring austin rivers off the bench maybe you maybe you even do start rivers maybe you bring campazzo off the bench and you just say nicola Jokic is like straight up our point guard like he's gonna bring the ball up and we're gonna start paul milsap move porter jr the two we're just gonna be fucking huge out here and at least we can take away stuff at the rim we'll hide Jokic on covington a lot of the time put Millsap on nurkits we're gonna do some switching uh if you if you want to go one-on-one against us well hey we've got all this size out here i mean also or you could say we'll still have Jokic. on Nurkic and but we're gonna blitz more aggressively get the ball out of it uh Dame or CJ's hands and then we're gonna at least have Millsap on the back line who can make us some plays defensively a little bit just go back to the old school Denver Nuggets from a few years ago Jermichael Green could get involved in, in that as well and just because the reality is that all their good players are big right now right like Paul Millsap is a better player than uh Austin Rivers or Campezzo probably uh even at this point in his career and, and so I, I think that's what I would try to do be, and that maybe that could give them enough and, you know, they can bludgeon him more on the glass as well. Uh Maybe Porter Jr. will be guarded by a smaller player, which enable him to get off a little bit more. And then, you know, Millsap and Gordon, uh, Gordon hasn't shot it great, but he was 2-4 tonight and, and Millsap actually has been a better shooter this year. So you hope to get just enough shooting there. Like, I don't know that, like, compazzo is so much greater of a shooter than like Millsap is off the ball so maybe maybe you just try and do it do it that way they started that lineup at times or close to it and maybe you i the reason you would start rivers instead of Campazzo is just that so you can get a little more size on either dame or cj on the perimeter or do some more switching one through four um but it's you know maybe they don't want to get that drastic with it yet but I think I probably would honestly um maybe maybe you don't start that lineup um but maybe you have it ready to go to if you're getting just totally lit up again are uh, you ready for Boston and Brooklyn
2: yeah let's do it so in many ways the the first half what went about as well as you could expect for the Boston Celtics their their defense looked good the Nets weren't Nets weren't hitting shots and then all of a sudden the Nets started hitting shots and I think we to me this was a reminder of why you and I both thought this was was going to be a short series
1: in some ways it was and in other ways it wasn't i mean the, the way in which it was was brooklyn beat them by 11 and they shot it terribly from three i mean all by the way all four home teams pelton noted this were just atrocious from three i think the nuggets shooting 30 percent was like the highest of any of these yeah
2: teams. i'll give the whole stat after day one road teams shot 43 percent on threes home team shot 25 percent, and the road teams took more as well
1: Yeah, and so Boston started 6 out of 13 from 3, and then there were 5 out of their final 17 from 3. Actually, probably better said is they're 8 out of 17 in the first half, and then only 3 out of 13 in the second half. And Really, that 13 number of even shots to get up was very disappointing for them. And I think, but my biggest takeaway is that despite 8 of 34 from 3, and I think they hit their first three-pointer with like, what, one minute left in the first half or something like that? They're like one out of 12 in the first half. And then they got going a little bit in the second, but it made six in the third quarter. And then they only made two in the fourth quarter. But I thought the Boston or or, or, uh, the Brooklyn Nets defense was legitimately good. Tonight, other than Blake Griffin, which you know that's easily enough solved. You agree to do? You think they actually played like legitimately good defense?
2: I thought they played pretty well. I mean, we we've seen Kyrie have his moments, and Durant wasn't always a hit, but he was more hit than than he uh, that he often was during the regular season. Harden competed, ended up with four steals. A lot of those, his ball hawking nature, you know, not necessarily like tearing guys up on the ball. I thought that he looked good and getting and, and something that I think we'll see more of these guys later is that once. Steve Nash got into some of his bench guys you could see more of the theory of how this could work with Bruce Brown or with Nick Claxton in particular
1: yeah Claxton uh, he did pick up two fouls right away and only played 11 minutes um and you know like within like his first two iso possessions he he committed two bad fouls but uh yeah I, I think it was good for him to get his feet wet um Griffin was plus one but had three fouls four assists didn't attempt a field goal he started at center next to, I guess, the big four, throw Joe Harris in there as well. And so Griffin was getting torched, uh, particularly at the start of the third uh, in isolation by Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker. I do wish Jalen Brown were available in the series. Oh. Like I think that actually would have been pretty fun to see, although... You know, the Celtics just didn't really seem to have a great plan other than just isoing against the Nets. And I thought the Nets just executed their switching defense pretty well. Uh, And they've been doing that all year. Maybe not all with the big three altogether, but all of these guys pretty much have experience playing and switching systems. Kyrie in the playoffs for all those years with the Celtics going up against the Warriors and... KD obviously playing with the Warriors and James Harden playing with Houston and then the other guys have been out there all year and they've practiced it all year so they know what they're doing they only had a few bad miscommunications Harden had one like 2014-esque breakdown when Fournier slipped behind him in the second half and he didn't even notice it but I thought generally they really prevented the Celtics from getting great looks and as soon as those their hot shooting from three dried up then it really was around then to only even give up 13 three point attempts in the second half was impressive. Jason Tatum, who is generally not a good isolation player, had a miserable second half. He really had, I think he had zero field goals. Maybe it was one during the competitive portion of the second half before the Nets went up 17. And a, a six point possession by the Celtics on a flagrant foul by KD made it look a little bit more respectable than it was. And Tatum was. Just his shot chart Danny was just atrocious. 0 of 7 from mid-range, 1 of 4 for that I mean that's the other thing, only 4 three-pointers for Jason Tatum and you know he's just he's not going to be able to just blow by guys and force help and that's really what you have to do against these switching d- team if you're going to iso. Most of these, you know, if you don't have three of the greatest isolation scores ever going against the other team switching, then you've got to be able to get into the paint, force help, kick out rather than just going for your own offense and they don't have anyone really who can put that type of pressure on the defense. Kemba had a miserable night as well. He had three fouls in the first half, and it hit a few garbage buckets late. But it, it, he really struggled. He only played twenty-seven minutes. He was the team worst, negative twenty-one. Uh, but I, I will let you talk about the one bright spot for the Boston Celtics. So I know I know you are uh... Uh, champion at the bit for that.
2: Oh, I am my beloved time Lord. And Robert Williams was so damn disruptive in this game was absolutely delightful. And okay, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna since you are since you are typically very good at this. There have been three players that have had 10 blocks in a playoff game. Can you name any of them?
1: I think I saw them on on the
2: on the broadcast.
1: On the broadcast. So Andrew Bynum was the last one in like 2012. Correct. Uh, Akeem. Yep. And who is the third guy? I'm not going to remember it. Mark Eaton. Oh, of course, Mark Eaton. Yeah, that that would make sense. Yeah, those late 80s Jazz were actually like a real defensive team before they kind of shifted after Eaton's retirement to being more of an offensive team. But yeah. yeah, that was uh yeah, so but I'm guessing all those guys played more than twenty three minutes.
2: Yeah, the the closest anybody came to getting nine blocks in that short a period of time was actually Dwight Howard in game one of the of the first round series in twenty ten. He blocked nine shots in twenty eight minutes. And Robert Williams, he was everywhere, surprising guys with his length. Also, almost got a triple-double in 23 minutes with points, rebounds, and blocks, which was incredible. And he had this sequence... Well, I guess it wasn't a sequence. It was just a stretch during it was I, the beginning the, of the fourth quarter, fourth quarter right? where he blocked. Yeah. Like blocked like four shots in a couple of minutes.
1: Yeah. At one point he had seven blocks in 15 minutes. Uh, and even more impressive to me was, I mean, Boston switched everything. That was their scheme. Uh, not literally everything, but they, I mean, really the first time they've done that with Tristan Thompson, uh, at center and then they brought Williams and I'm like hmm are, are they because I, I thought maybe we're not even gonna see Robert Williams because they're switching everything maybe they're gonna go to Grant Williams and said no because they didn't play Grant Williams at all they went with Robert Williams and Williams has looked better on switches this year but I'm like man with the turf toe really like is he gonna uh, be able to switch with these guys like he was terrible terrible on switches last year though he had shown something in college uh to be able to do it uh but in the bubble he was like the Miami series he was like going against Jimmy Butler he was just foul every time and so no, he just complete. Harden tried to dribble past him twice, couldn't do it, and Harden's like, oh, okay, I'll just go back out to the perimeter now and try this again. Went to the step back, and Robert Williams just got off the floor and blocked it. Was it. it was an it was an unbelievable sequence, and you know he got a bunch of offensive rebounds, and big dunks uh, as well. So uh, that was really exciting, and the fact that he could hold up as a switch guy, I think, was really exciting uh, because I mean the Brooklyn Nets offense was. Oh, you're gonna switch? Okay, we're just gonna throw it to KD or Kyrie or Harden or whoever's the least tired and they're just gonna go go do it. I think Harden actually was by far the least successful, I would say. Um, you know, Harden is really probably the guy to handle it more when they're going conventional pick and roll defense, but KD had a rough first quarter he was two out of ten but then I I really liked what Steve Dash did where they just threw it to KD in isolation just like five times in a row at the start of the third quarter and he went at Jason Tatum drew a couple of fouls got double team kicked out started got the three-point game going a little bit Uh, that was nice and you know that was the sort of thing that would never happen for Kevin Durant on the Golden State Warriors like they just did not play that way they should have played that way. That's what they should have done on the second unit. Of course, they also had zero shooting around him and the Nets uh the Nets have some shooting. Yes, <laughs> they do. Him, so
2: even though they even though they shot 8 of 34 in this game. They do have shooting.
1: Yeah, but I mean and Boston, you know, their philosophy is they're not going to overhelp and Kyrie uh was 11 out of 20. He was ridiculous at one point. Uh he was 5 of 5 from mid-range all of them obviously like difficult contested shots. So I mean the Nets only had 18 assists on 35 field goals, but that wasn't a problem. Like they, and if they had just hit a few more threes, they would have had more assists and they got some pretty good looks. I thought from three, like they'll, they'll shoot it much better from three in the series. So, you know, Boston had like a slight chance, but they just couldn't score. And I mean, that's, And I don't really know. Tatum can shoot a little better. Kemi can shoot a little better. Uh, You know, they actually got a pretty good offensive game from Marcus Smart, which probably isn't necessarily going to continue. Maybe they get a little bit more Robert Williams. I mean, they were even isoing Jabari Parker at times in this game. They really just did not have a ton of answers. Uh, I think one thing they could do, though, adjustment-wise, is try to go at Harden more tire him out a little bit try to go at Kyrie more though Kyrie held up pretty darn well I, I thought uh, as a switch defender and the Nets I mean they're just pretty tied together like you're not getting the little system buckets the Celtics were not really looking for that able to get that they're not like a crisp passing team they're not really a very good passing team um you know they, they weren't maybe Robert Williams can get some of those quick slips to the rim at times uh but the Nets did a good job of switching out behind the play from bad matchups uh, I thought KD defended Tatum pretty well uh, one-on-one. So that that was pretty good. Um, certainly more Robert Williams if he can play more. But, I mean, he re-aggravated the turf toe again. I'm sure he's getting, like, a pain-killing injection in that thing every time. And that kind of probably wears off by the second half. So I, I don't think he can go more than 23 minutes. I don't either. You would imagine. Uh, Peyton Pritchard, they tried him. He got just lit up. I thought in the second half, the Kyrie just uh, eyes got wide as saucers, uh, and they put him in screening action. He's not really going to be able to guard any of the the big three guys if he gets switched onto him. Yeah, you know, maybe you go more Grant Williams uh, as well. Maybe even Grant Williams at the four, just to kind of give you a little bit more like help defense and intelligence. Um, you know, maybe the ability to mash some switches a little bit. But obviously, Brad Stevens doesn't really seem to particularly believe in him if he's playing Jabari Parker over him. And Parker, it wasn't bad, honestly. I I didn't think he had a couple of fouls, but so.
2: To to switch back to the other side, I think one of the most important lessons that Steve Nash will learn from the series, and I mean, we might have gotten an indication in game one, is which players being the fifth Beatle are viable. And to me, at least in this series, but I, I think potentially another one's moving forward, Blake Griffin, not the right fit. Like, yes, he can keep the ball moving. He's a talented passer and he can hit some shots. But I like basically every other viable option more than him against capable opposition. And the Nets need to figure this stuff out now because whether it's the Bucks or the Heat, and I think it's going to be the Bucks, they're going to have to come out on fire because that series is going to be so challenging.
1: Yeah, I would say they need to give Nick Claxton more time. Like, they're probably going to close it with Jeff Green at center, and he was plus 14, although he's not an amazing isolation defender. He, he can at least, you know, put up some resistance. He's not going to get trucked. I think they need to play Claxton more just to get him some experience, because I think he's ideally, in a lot of situations, now Jeff Green gives him the shooting on one end, but... Claxton I think you know gives them that element of dunking around the rim they don't trust DeAndre Jordan who got the DNP in this one so I would just I want to play Nick Claxton more and get him ready to to not foul commit two fouls in two possessions the way he did and see if you can get him to the point where he's going to be viable against the the best teams going forward now is he going to work against Joel Embiid you know maybe maybe not right that's that could be a tough matchup obviously Brooke Lopez and, and Giannis are gonna be a tough matchup you know, I think you did see a little bit with what Robert Williams did to them today, like what a really athletic team how that could cause problems for the Nets but also the Nets aren't going to shoot 8 out of 34 from 3 uh, and I thought Boston defended them about as well as you can hope I mean they, they held them to 104 the pace was super slow that's been a theme too like super slow pace again 91 possessions in this one but yeah I I, I just I, there's not a ton that Boston can do here I think they they did a pretty decent job and uh, Jason Tatum is just going to have a lot on his plate in this series and if he can't drive the offense and score in isolation I think they could be in trouble obviously they need to try and run more uh they did have 12 fast break points but they need to just push the pace like crazy at every opportunity Kemba in particular I I think looking to outlet the ball to him give him a chance uh, as well that's about all I got on this game let me see if I have anything else in my notes real quick
2: that's all I have
1: uh, they tried to start with Kemba and Kyrie, and he got the three fouls, so they hit him on Joe Harris later on. Uh, Boston was ahead by five at halftime, but an 11-0 Nets run early in the third really took care of things. The Celtics did not hit a single three in the third, while well, the Nets were actually 5 out of 12. The Celtics turning it over 12 times, that's too many. And, uh, you know, you really got to be single-digit turnovers against this Nets team because they're switching. They don't really have, like, big sharks. Um... Kyrie, even, I mean, he was even like beating Marcus Smart in isolation. Like, it was pretty nasty. And man, Danny, to those Nets fans who sounded pretty loud in this game, they love them some isolation basketball, don't they? Which is good because uh, that's what this team's going to do.
2: Well, and not only did those Nets fans love some isolation basketball, it seemed like Kyrie at times really relished going against his former team and some of his former teammates.
1: Yeah, uh, that definitely was the case. And, and I mean, we'll see. I, I expect them to lose game two, and I'm sure the Boston crowd will be fired up. And I'm guessing that Kyrie is probably going to silence them in, in game three. But we'll see. You know, maybe Boston can make enough effort plays to win one of the two games in Boston. They just got to get more offensive pace in general, just quick attacks, treat the guy switching on to you like you know he's a dropping big instead of someone switching on to you don't back it out and stuff Like you got to just go hard right away uh attack off the drill but I mean the Nets help defense was pretty I mean that was the crazy thing was the Celtics didn't really get shots at the rim and they were terrible from two and they weren't really getting you know when they tried to get inside the Nets were had good help defense and uh, like the Celtics shot chart really like You got to have like an analytically perfect shot chart to beat the Nets. And the Celtics shot three out of 18 from mid-range. Yeah,
2: four out of 13 from floater range too. Sunday's games now.
1: Let's get to the game of the day. The playoff ingenues, as I like to call them. The Hawks and the Knicks. And Trey Young, the new public enemy number one. Had some Reggie Miller-esque aspects to him. uh, A little bit. A little bit of a troll. Draw some bullshit fouls. felt like old times in the garden in what was easily I thought the best playoff crowd as far as you can tell through the tv Utah would probably be second although we were doing the cast for Phoenix we didn't get to hear that one so yeah this was a fun game although I couldn't help but thinking Part of the way that, hey, you know, this isn't like the highest quality played or coached game, but it was certainly fun.
2: It was certainly fun. And you and I talked before this series began about how unusual a coaching matchup this was and how, you know, you and I have both been so skeptical of both Nate McMillan and Tom Thibodeau as playoff coaches before. And now they're facing off in the same series. And I think we saw some of those nuances come to the forefront and one of them being the Knicks just not being able to handle especially the double drag but a lot of what the Hawks wanted to run when Trey Young was on the floor
1: yeah, and really it was Trey Young getting downhill, being able to make plays. And you know, it sounds like a good idea, right? We're just going to make him take floaters. But a lot of the floaters that he was taking were very short floaters, right? They they were dotted line floaters, not free throw line floaters. And his floater has really regressed this year. He had one of the best in the NBA last year. Uh, But he had it tonight. It's just too difficult, though. He's just too good of a playmaker once he gets in there, especially when you're showing him the same look nearly every time. And whether it's the double drag, whether it was just a regular pick and roll, as well, Young, 32 points, 11 to 23 from the field, 10 assists, and really importantly, only two turnovers. Hawksley had six turnovers in this game, which really helped their offensive efficiency stay above water during the time when they couldn't hit any threes. And obviously, Young will talk about his shot at the end of the game, a game-winning floater uh, against Frank Nilekina. We could talk about that aspect uh, of it too. So it it was surprising because that to me is the thing, maybe a little bit less so under Nate McMillan than Lloyd Pierce, but that double drag to me is the play that is the most difficult to guard for the Hawks. And so to kind of not really have a great plan for it, if you are the Knicks... Especially when they have some pretty intense guys uh, in their defense uh, who can get out on the floor a a little bit more, but Tibbs, he is uh, a very orthodox coach and Trey Young uh, was able to really ultimately skewer their defensive philosophy and particularly at the end of the game the other thing that's a problem with that too is once you let trey young turn the corner and get in front of you then of course you're liable to pick up some of those fouls running up his back which that didn't happen most of the game but it sure as hell happened some late so i i thought trey is just we thought this would be a pretty decent matchup for him and it turned out that it was in this game
2: yeah, and Young shot chart two of two in the restricted area, seven of twelve from floater range, one of six from mid-range, and one of three from three. And that's amazing to for Trey Young to only have taken three three-pointers, also nine and nine from the line. And yeah. part of that was because he didn't have to. And instead, the Hawks were generating a ton of corner threes at times in this game they ended up taking 24 above the break and 10 from the corner but they were getting a lot of clean ones late but some of bogdanovich's good ones including one that was blocked by a Michelob ultra ad which was pretty funny um and also frustrating at one point in time and and the hawks were just able to consistently generate good looks even in crunch time and in most circumstances i would say okay how it's let's, let's focus more on the counterattacks that the hawks have because we know that their opponent is going to figure out a way to handle this that they you know it's the number one priority for the coaching staff and, and I think it still is either way and I I do think that the Knicks coaching staff will will do some better wrinkles to be sure yeah but they, they
1: did they in fairness there were a couple of possessions late where they did something a little different on the pick and roll like one time Taj Gibson got up there you, you heard Tibbs say also in the in the inside tracks we got to get up to touch in the pick and roll and they started defending better during that period but then uh, Trey sliced him up late but there was one play where Taj Gibson did a good job of kind of not letting the screen be set very well. There was another play where they forced Trey towards the baseline. In fact, that was the play where Trey threw it to the corner for what I thought was the biggest shot of the game almost got it intercepted and that went right to Bogdanovich and he hit a tough three to tie it uh, at 103 late um so that they did try something a little bit different at times but if there was a different plan it wasn't particularly well executed but that's part of the what makes it so difficult against the double drag particularly against a a passer like Trey um and
2: and then you can throw in the other Tibbs bugaboo of having his guys having his rotation and I mean Alfred Payton only played eight minutes in this game probably eight minutes too much but especially Especially because
1: two two thirds, two thirds of a Bogans,
2: two thirds of a Bogans, but partially because the Knicks backup guards all had great games. Derek Rose had a dominant stretch. Alec Burks was gargantuan in the second half and then quickly had some nice moments in his playoff debut.
1: Yeah, uh, he was pretty solid and Rose was pretty incredible. He played 19 straight minutes in the first half. Not even in the second half where it's like, oh man, he's got it going so well. And again, you have to really question starting Peyton. In the second half, Peyton, he was like, Well, I know I'm coming out after four minutes. I I get these shots up, he, he was over too. They went back to Rose. They did at least give Rose like a two-minute break in the fourth quarter, but Rose had thirty-eight minutes off the bench, which was gotta be one of the higher amounts that a bench player has ever played in postseason play. Especially, it, especially in a regulation game. Yeah, yeah. That's as I meant, regulation, and then especially for one who didn't start either half right like fred van fleet would start the second half in some of those games in 2019 so yeah this was uh it was definitely a rollicking game i really just incredibly enjoyed the garden crowd in this i think Trey young uh did as well he mentioned some of the fuck you Trey young chants uh, after the game and, and how much he enjoyed shutting those up perhaps a, a new expletive will be in order uh for game two
2: well and so an interesting question for me on this one is what do you see sticking and what do you see changing in game two so julius randall is going to have a better performance overall especially given the limitations that we would have Thought that the Hawks would have defending him. Randall, six of 23 from the field, struggled from two, struggled from three, did rebound the ball reasonably well, but also, you know, wasn't as much of a creator, though they had plenty of other creators. I mean, Rose did a nice job, Burks did a nice job. But so Randall, you assume he's going to play better, but. Burks set the world on fire during stretches of that time. Rose was insanely good and a lot of their young guys did a nice job. So like how do you square those two those two forces moving in other direction?
1: Yeah, you mentioned Randall's terrible shooting. It was 1 out of 10 for mid-range, only 3 out of 7 at the rim. And it was just a lot of iso ball for Julius Randall and you know the Hawks started with DeAndre Hunter who ended up not actually playing all that much. They started with Hunter on him and then John Collins, who I thought had a pretty good defensive game overall, spent time on Randall as well. And but these are the shots that Randall's been taking all year. But I think you you just have to run some more stuff to really get him them. I mean, they didn't run a single play with Julius Randall handing in the ball and pick and roll going at Trey Young that I recall. Maybe there was like one. Um, Randall didn't really have a play where he got a matchup. You know, against Hunter, like he's stronger than Hunter, right? Like he should be able to kind of bully his way into the lane, but also. They don't really have great spacing around him, particularly in that starting unit. Uh, Using him as a pick-and-roll screener and then being able to get the ball on the move. You know, they didn't do a ton of that either. Uh, So they did... I mean, I'd like to see how many of his shots actually were just out of like straight isos or post-ups, but it it didn't seem like they did a ton of stuff to kind of get him the ball in space against a defense that wasn't set. And I don't know if uh, a Tom Thibodeau offense is necessarily going to change that. But those are the some of the things that I would try. But yeah, he will shoot better, obviously than than one out of ten. Those are the some of the shots he's been making all year. But worth noting he's a forty percent shooter for mid range. He's not a fifty percent shooter for mid range. This is we're not talking about Kyrie Irving here. And so, but but he obviously part of the the issue for the Knicks was without randall really cooking then the hawks could kind of go to some more offensive lineups on the floor which is part of why the knicks had trouble stopping that spread pick and roll late um and burks you know he won't have this ridiculous game next game i, I mean i think the this is kind of about how i expect the knicks to score overall i mean they they actually were the best home three-point shooting team out of the game once shooting 10 out of 30 which was uh ridiculous and and burks and quickly uh, combined for five out of seven there uh and Reggie Bullock he really missed some wide open looks too so I I think they'll you know this is not a good Hawks defense and I I think that they can play maybe a little bit better offensively but this also is not a great Knicks offense either and it also really depends what the lineup is out there for the Hawks like I think the Hawks starters with Collins and Capella out there and deandre hunter that's a, a pretty good defensive group if you go to let's see what was the lineup young herder bogdan gallo and collins i don't know maybe that's actually not not as good of a defensive
2: group that that was the most surprising thing of the game to me was was and go to that and then it, going to it again i mean i mean it was fine the first time but being able to have an all offensive lineup and we wondered what the theory of the case was going to be when capella was off the floor capella played 35 minutes but Anyeko kongwu not hasn't really got to that level yet, Bruno yeah, Fernando? Not
1: play in the second half.
2: Bruno Fernando is not playoff ready, and so they don't really have another player who fills that role. So instead, they went more often with Collins at the five and. Collins had some moments I would say on, on both ends of the floor and the Hawks bench you know it kind of came and went I thought there were a, a, I mean Lou Williams had some nice moments where he really carried the show and th- the mutually beneficial trade in my opinion of Lou Williams for Rajon Rondo where Lou Williams I mean, he knows when he's on the floor and Trey Young isn't this is his show he got a Lou for one I believe that was in the third quarter was was active six for nine from the field and and if that's all you give him if that's all he plays do that now Kevin Herbert. eh, We'll see. Snell still kind of working his way back. He did make one three. Continued his 50% three-point shooting. But I thought Gallinari Gallinari was awful.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, he really struggled. And one of seven from three had some pretty good looks. The one three that he did hit was a pick and pop. And that actually was working reasonably well because uh, when they had Toppin out there on the second unit because they didn't want to switch that play. So he was actually able to get open. I would go back to that. The uh, Lou Williams Gallo pick and pop because Tom Thibodeau's teams are gonna play a pretty conventional defense they don't want to get Obi Toppin stuck onto Lou Williams that's basically an instant foul you would think yeah Lou was huge for them I mean they hadn't scored in four minutes the Knicks uh, I think were up six end of the quarter and then that Lou for one he scored seven straight points right including a bucket right at the start of the fourth as well and you know in this series where you don't have like a ton of top end talent and a ton of experience some of these bench guys like Rose and Lou Williams and Burks like any of these guys can go off and really change a game uh, in theory as uh, all three of those guys really did um yeah Gallo couldn't stop anybody defensively actually his first stint uh was okay against Randall Uh, But then he he got really torched in his second stint just by a a number of players um, and rightfully was not out there uh, at the end. And uh, thank God because his haircut is awful right now <laughs> not great I mean he's got such a great he's got such great hair too How, why would you ruin it Gala why all right sorry um New Orleans Noel I thought was really impactful at the start of the third as the Knicks started to make their big run uh, had a bunch of blocks he, he wasn't probably as effective in the pick and roll against Trey but anybody who was trying to finish on on him in that third quarter just had no chance uh but and then hope- he kind of tweaked his foot uh, as well. And- That's where I was going. Yeah, I, I hope, he, I hope
2: he's. It. I hope he's fine. uh The good news for the Knicks is this is a very gradual series. The at least at the beginning game two isn't till Wednesday, so that gives these teams a lot of time. Gives the the wonderful Knicks fans the time to rest their vocal cords a little bit. And yeah, I, I I I think this series. My instinct is that it will adapt less than most series, but there will be a lot of variance because this has a lot of high variance players. Like there will it will be those sorts of circumstances. Yeah. But
1: well, and also there are just a lot of bench guys who are going to come in like different guys will be having different games there's going to be different closing lineups out there probably these are both deep teams I mean hilariously nobody played more minutes than Derek Rose who was 38 minutes and he came off the bench yep um let's see if I I got some other small we got to talk about the end of the game obviously uh you know Trey was actually more aggressive just taking like a normal jump shot from mid-range than he normally would be usually it's a three a floater or, or getting to the rim or obviously making passes they started the game as we actually had suggested with John Collins guarding Alfred Payton and I think that's maybe part of why Tibbs went away from Payton even faster than normal and then Collins they put him on Randall but I thought Collins held up okay yeah on Randall so I, I until Randall burns that matchup I think I would be all right with that and then you see whether uh hunter is really needed or not uh, you know he's kind of still working his way back particularly offensively from where he was early in the season i thought he had a decent uh, enough defensive game but he still he still looks a little coltish out there get, getting back from that knee issue and, and can only play so many minutes you know a kongwu playing three minutes in the first i mean this it it was very very regular season to start this from both coaches and we'll just kind of have to see how that evolves throughout Uh, more so i think uh, from mcmillan uh Bogdanovich, i thought was wonderful oh yeah Uh, four of nine for three 18 points plus 17 i thought he played some pretty good defense as well they had one play, I mean, they're at the end of the game, because Burks and Rose were hot, they were hiding Trey on RJ Barrett. And they had one play where they went to Barrett and Barrett, I mean, he's so strong, he can go right through Rose. He scored with where they didn't get enough help at the rim. But that's if they try to hide Trey on RJ Barrett, I would go back to that much more often. I think just generally they didn't really come in with a plan to make Trey work. On defense and only playing 35 minutes he had plenty of energy left for the end of the game i thought it was interesting also that the hawks closed the first half without clint capella who i think they just really need in there for defense and uh particularly rebounding they had some very rough rebounding stretches without capella in well, there and,
2: and also they have so few good screeners that i thought they capella that was something seth brought up and i noticed yeah. it too was that they that the trey young actions looked so much better when capella was on the floor
1: yeah, John Collins is generally going to try and slip and uh, for his own offense. When you know the way they're playing it, the uh, the way to play it is to get Trey downhill first, uh, and Gallo same thing. Like he's going to try and pick it, pick and pop. I did think that they could have featured Collins a little bit more. I mean, he really, he only took five two-point field goals in this game. The one post-up he had, he scored. But they've, he's been kind of in offensive purgatory for a while as they've just featured Young and Bogdanovich and Lou Williams a, a, a little bit more, and the Those guys seem to all be bigger options than Collins is when he's in with Capella. Capella's the guy rolling to the rim. And, you know, for Alec Burks, The way that they were getting him going, we can kind of shift to the end of the game. He he hit some... More one on one moves early, and he uh, led the Knicks with 27 points on 9 and 13. But the way they were getting him going was trapping Derrick Rose on the pick and roll on the right side of the floor. Burks is in the left corner. Hunter would have to come over onto Taj Gibson, either with Gibson catching the ball or to take away Gibson's role. And then they would set up Burks in the weak side corner. He got three shots there, made two of them off pretty much that exact same action. And they were kind of blitzing Derrick Rose which is what led to that you know i think you can play the pick and roll Two on two with Rose and Taj Gibson is particularly because Gibson is like kind of limited as a role man finisher, especially if you've got Capella back there. But that, that's not how they elected to to play it. Well, um, and,
2: and also important that stretch the, those Alec Burks makes because there was a turnover in between that took it from a 198 game in favor of the Hawks to 103 100 Knicks.
1: Yeah, and then uh, there's the Trey pick and roll. They force him towards the baseline. Incredible shot by Bogdanovich off the deflection in the right corner uh, to tie it, which again, I thought was the, the, the biggest Biggest play of the game even more so Uh, randall had one ridiculous step back three in the last few minutes to put the knicks up one and you know it kind of seemed like with the crowd it was getting away from the hawks and that three by bogdanovich really righted the ship there was also of course a controversial call which tibbs challenged where trey was able to attack rj barrett in transition and a Draw the foul against him, but that is in today's day and age a foul. He, RJ Barrett has the forearm on him. Now, it's a tough call because, you know, he's just kind of got his forearm at his side and Trey Young is just going right into his body and RJ's forearm almost gets caught in between Trey and him. But that's why they tell you fundamentally now, if you are running parallel to a driver, you got to just put both your hands out because, especially against Trey Young, you're getting a called for a foul. That's what it was. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was a big shock to Nick's. Fans. Fans who uh, haven't watched the last five years of NBA basketball to know that that is a foul now, but and it's kind of a bullshit foul, I agree. But it it is, if you want to not have contact on drivers on the perimeter, like that's the kind of foul that you have to live with. But Tibbs' challenge was not a good one. They had no chance of winning that one. I mean, it was a high leverage one with the game tied and what was it, twenty seven seconds left, but I think it was it was well, just and, and a little
2: bit of had two bit of a little bit of a little bit to a to bit of a little of those were fairly low it's just that you don't have a, yeah. you a to have
1: yeah but i mean once you see that there's that forearm contact from that like that's just going to be a foul uh, i mean a are you're, you're a that's just the kind of judgment call too of of Unless there's like literally zero contact, you're just not going to get that that call necessarily. So, uh, and then the Knicks, Randall tried to go for the winning three, bricked it way off the backboard, and Taj got the offensive rebound. They kick it around. Great job by the Hawks closing everyone out to avoid giving up a three but Rose made a really difficult floater he's actually been one of the best floater shooters in the league shooting about 53 percent on floaters this year floater off the right foot right hand
2: was that the second right foot right hand floater to tie a game over the weekend
1: yeah yeah because Butler Butler had one too so 10.2 when that goes through and there was a zero point zero percent chance that Nate McMillan was going to not call a timeout in that situation although in theory that that allowed Tibbs to get in defensive replacements but one of those defensive replacements was Frank Nilakina, who I think had only played, I can't remember if it was the end of the third or one of the end, end of the quarters earlier, but he hadn't played basically anything other than like 10 seconds as a defensive replacement. And, you know, is Frank Nilakina, like just from a sports science perspective, like does Frank Nilakina know that he might come in as a defensive replacement? Is he like warming up in the hallway, hitting the bike, like doing a bunch of practice defensive slides to where he's warm to come in the game? Because... And Tibbs had talked about maybe using him as a defensive stopper in the media before the series, but it, you just, and they had struggled to contain Trey, obviously. But man, I mean, that is a tough assignment to come in, and particularly because, you know, Trey scored on that play, but to have not kind of been guarding him the whole time and like gotten the rhythm of like some of the stuff that he does and like draw fouls, like I think like Neil Keenan to me was that a big risk of getting a foul in that situation coming in off the bench cold. Yeah. And
2: it, it, it's a lot like how baseball players talk about pinch hitting being a lot harder than normal hitting because you don't get you're not in the game you don't get the feel of it and in basketball in many ways it's even more difficult because things change so much more frequently it's not just like the pitcher and the catcher and you're standing in between
1: yeah so i could see going to a defensive replacement when you know it's just he's not guarding the guy the guy that you absolutely know is going to get the ball and when i think like they're guard
2: or they're guarding the inbounder like they're just standing there looking all tall
1: yeah or it's just you know you're not guarding like a high foul player one-on-one just where you're like, Oh, Hey, we got to get our terrible defensive point guard off the floor. know you feel like that you know okay take trey young out but it's usually for a guy who's like you know played more than three seconds and more recently than hours ago so uh now i didn't think Nilakina's defense was terrible and trey had a wonderful crossover to get by him they did go to the pick and roll trap against trey so they went with a different strategy to get taj gibson out on the floor but trey uh eluded Nilakina got into the lane and then Nilakina obviously didn't want to follow him from behind and he hit you know a pretty darn tough floater still to win it, the Knicks had one more chance with Randall at 0.9 left but I think they ruled that he he didn't get yeah, that ruled off. that he didn't even get that shot off
2: yeah he tried he end. tried to shoot a turnaround with a second left I don't think you I don't think it's like physically possible to do that
1: yeah I, I was surprised they just blew it dead so quickly but uh, I think if you don't just go right into your shot uh, they're not going to give it to you in that situation so uh, any other adjustments
2: here for game two I think we've talked about all of them in the flow of the conversation
1: yeah, this is man we we better not spend twenty seven minutes on on all these here. I, I think we can we can manage it though. let's get to Phoenix and the Lakers. We did this one for the NBA cast and obviously the big news was Chris Paul suffering that stinger, basically not being able to dribble with his right hand. It seemed like, if he took more than one dribble with his right hand and without looking at it, he would just lose the ball, which is, I mean, that was just such a bummer to see. And he was able to come back in. I thought the Lakers could have done a little bit better a job of figuring out that he just could not dribble with his right. hand. he had a couple of those right elbow impossible jumpers but was not interested in taking a three-pointer at all they started kind of doubling off of him onto booker as things went on and i thought the lakers defense overall was good enough other than their transition defense in the first half but they just couldn't score again this is it was interesting continuation of a trend because they had They scored in the 90s in two game one losses against the Blazers and the Rockets, like two not exactly defensive powerhouses last year as well. But I think the biggest story is just that LeBron James had a very, very passive game.
2: Yeah, LeBron had very few attacks of the basket. Maybe like two or three. It felt like over the course of yeah. the game, he ended in up in the
1: half court. I mean, I think he had a couple court. more in transition. Transition, but, yeah. yeah, but
2: that's not the same kind of resistance. And LeBron ended up only taking four shots. In the paint, two in the restricted area, two from floater range, and two mid rangers, and then seven three pointers. And he made three of those seven three pointers, which you know it's probably a little bit better, maybe than you might might think. Is in the range. He also missed, had that really weird free throw miss at one point as well. But you combine and five turnovers, should mention that as well. And but but you combine that with one of the other big problems that that the Lakers had, and this one is. I don't know if it's more correctable because it just depends on how LeBron is feeling physically. We'll see how the the next week or so looks for his ankle. But Anthony Davis was just much less active in what the Lakers were doing because they couldn't put him in the situation to succeed because they just had another dude who's worse than him there.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this, obviously, ad nauseum. We don't need to hit it, obviously. We don't think that Andre Drummond should be starting. And, you know, Drummond had seven offensive rebounds, but rare is it between his spotty free throw shooting and poor finishing, relatively rare, I should say, is it that he, you know, he's not Jonas Valanciunas where every offensive rebound that he actually gets two hands on is just going right back in the basket, right? So, um, yeah, AD was strangely passive. He was just spacing the floor a lot. I thought that they could have gotten in the ball more in isolation, particularly in the third quarter when both Aiton and Crowder were on three fouls. Uh, that that didn't really materialize much. Again, it's a little harder to do that because you don't have a ton of floor spacing. Obviously, the Lakers' three-point shooting was a major problem. They were seven out of 26. I think they hit a couple late in, in garbage time to even make it that good. 17 out of 28 from the line. That was a big problem. James and Davis were missing free throws as well. Schroeder was three out of six. Uh, Although I thought he played a a reasonably efficient offensive game. So it was definitely the Lakers offense that was the issue. But considering that the issues that Chris Paul had, I thought that Devin Booker with 34 points in 45 minutes, particularly after Cameron Payne got himself thrown out of the game in incredibly asinine fashion. uh, He was the number one star of this game to me. The Lakers really struggled to deal with him in the end.
2: Yeah, and it was a mixture of... Jump shots and getting into the paint for Booker. Also had eight assists, which tied with CP for their for the team lead. Did have some turnover trouble at a couple moments in time, especially in the early going. I think he had four turnovers in the first quarter or quarter ish. Um, but Booker strong, able to get around the basket and was able to attack, especially when there was a mismatch in play. Got some good screens from Deandre Eaton, who had his own effective game. And yeah, I thought overall Devin Booker was the best player on the floor, and that's pretty damn good for anybody, especially for somebody in their playoff debut. Yeah. It was really
1: getting into the paint where Booker was 8 of 11. And overall, the Suns really smashed the Lakers in the paint. Again, particularly in the first half where the Lakers were not getting back on defense. They were getting out rebounded. And you thought, obviously, the Lakers, particularly if you're playing two centers, they should be the ones smashing the Suns. Dario Saric held up just fine in extended minutes too with Aiden getting in foul trouble Aiden got off early finishing around the rim was uh, really probably had the best offensive rebounding game that I've ever seen him had he was really fired up I mean this is the first time he's played in front of a real crowd since college at least uh that was cheering for him and he seemed very fired up by that he played some good individual defense on AD when that was the matchup as well and Mikhail Bridges didn't have a great offensive game, but he was, you know, just making LeBron's life a, a little bit miserable. Cam Johnson, I thought, was really key. He, he was to me was a big part of why Phoenix looked better. Like his his loss was probably an underrated one, as at that backup four position in the weak side corner, which they're able to set up shots uh, for him and Phoenix really slowed down offensively in the second half when it became clear that Paul couldn't do anything and then the Lakers just started straight up doubling Devin Booker with another guard but I thought Phoenix actually had a pretty good plan against those doubles in a way that some other teams really haven't whether that's Golden State or Portland or Houston last year was they just I mean this is pretty standard stuff right you're if you're double teaming the ball out top You've got a four-on-three. You're basically going against a three-man zone. So get the ball to the foul line and then let that guy make plays. And and that worked just well enough. You know, Crowder got a free-throw line jumper. And Crowder and Bridges, like, those guys aren't unbelievable playmakers at the foul line. But they're able to do something. So I, I guess... Are you what is your concern level here for the Lakers going into game two?
2: It's modest because part of it is that LeBron didn't look right physically, and this series, I, I talked about how the, the pacing of the the Knicks one is kind of good for neuros as well. This is basically every other day for, for a while, and there isn't much travel, but I mean LA and Phoenix aren't that far geographically. Um, and so what is going to happen to make LeBron feel better? And that's he's so central to the Lakers Tech Now, the Lakers play different personnel can help make certain things easier they can have better spacing that will open things up for anthony davis and everything else and so it's not a great level of concern but i thought that the when you consider the mitigating factors the sun's offense did really well i thought that the the process was good i thought that you know the they were nine of 28 from three i could easily considering the shots they were getting i could see them making more of those they didn't get to the free throw line a single time in the first half but got there a bunch in the third quarter and I think that will largely continue. Booker was great. I could totally see that continuing and hopefully with the Stinger. I I don't know enough about this injury but my guess is that Chris Paul will be more capable in the rest of the series than before. So the Suns absolutely capable of winning this series and they did better in the charge at center minutes than I expected. I don't necessarily think that's going to continue just because there are other ways that can work. But to articulate something I went on a rant on on the Hot Mic broadcast but it's just worth repeating because I think it's an important important part of this game is it doesn't always have to be one way, but the general value of going big defensively in the NBA is that you're trying to do ideally four things, and if you can't do all four of them, maybe three or two. One is limit opponents' attempts at the rim. Two is limit opponents' field goal percentage at the rim. Three, reduce the number of fouls you commit as a team. And number four, defensive rebound. In this game, the Phoenix Suns shot 18 of 23 in the restricted area. That number was actually higher earlier in the game. The proportion of shots was higher earlier but making 78 percent of them is completely ridiculous early on the lakers weren't fouling but eventually they fouled a little bit more the lakers also missed 11 free throws
1: yeah yeah the suns did not take a free throw in the first first, but uh booker he's i think he shot all six of his free throws in like a two minute span at the end of the third which was a, a critical stretch
2: Absolutely. And then so so that factor that force they did okay. But this but the Suns, you brought this up in Aiden section, but it bears repeating. They got forty-one percent of their own misses in this game. That is astonishing and it's unforgivable for a team that was largely playing like we think of LeBron as a four. They were largely playing like supersized in this game.
1: Yeah, and Andre Drummond is a poor defensive rebounder. His teams have, despite being one of the greatest numerical rebounders in NBA history, his teams have generally defensive rebounded better with him off the floor. Marc Gasol, on the other hand, is a, a pure box out guy, and maybe there's a concern that Gasol isn't mobile enough. We talked about this a, a little bit in the preview as well, but I think to to get AD going and get LeBron going, get those guys some easy buckets too with some size mismatches down low. And I think that could really be helpful as well. But I think even more so perhaps defensively is why the Lakers need to go with AD at center so that they can have him at one of the greatest rim protectors ever around the basket. Like he's guarding Jay Crowder right now um you know mantras harrell had a nice offensive game He was able to get some deep deep post-ups in transition 12 points he was actually plus two uh so you know i don't know that he was the problem necessarily for them but he, again having him out there with ad now ad who is a better player around the basket than him it is kind of ceding that territory to him because harold can't go anywhere else and the lakers got to get more in transition obviously they'll hit more threes as well i think that's that's something that'll be good and i think you know to me i still think the lakers are going to take care of it in this series Assuming that you know LeBron James is going to take more than thirteen field goals, I think the fact that he only played thirty six minutes in this game is indicative of still of where uh, his health is at right now. And no, well, this is close to a must win for the Lakers in Game Two, going down That That is not great. Having to yeah. win four out of five, they could do it, but. Uh, uh, one LeBron other team once did it
2: one other player who is a part of the fabric of this game was Alex Caruso Caruso for a couple different reasons one of them being his his figuring in the fourth quarter where he basically forced three turnovers on consecutive possessions for the Suns as the Lakers were trying to make it a game again two by drawing charges one by kind of getting in the Cameron Payne's way and and forcing a turnover which then got LeBron in and one. And it was that one that pissed Cameron Payne off enough that on the next basically the next possession off of a loose ball, Cameron Payne shoves the crap out of or shoulder checks Alex Crusoe, then grabs the ball, Crusoe knocks it out of his hands, and then Payne throws it at him. Those created two technicals and an ejection, also a double T. For Caruso and Montrez Harrell, who tried to like break it up, but grabbed pain a little bit zealously. Um, So Caruso, I thought he was overall, he was effective in the Caruso way where he played good defense, not able to create a ton of good offense, but was able to convert the opportunities created for him
1: yeah and he he was plus one for all of james foibles he was still plus two in this game and i mean the offense
2: what the offense when lebron was on the four just didn't
1: no no it it was not very good and yeah it's you know he can always be lebron james and he can always make passes and he's always be smart and you know he'll hit some threes now and again it always seems like he hits threes when the rest of his game isn't working as well and he had 10 assists but five turnovers but obviously they're gonna need him to really be more of a scoring threat than this but yeah good
2: how have we not talked about the weird quirk that chris paul and lebron james were both involved in injuries for the other one i mean we talked about the cp stinger but the i would say straight up dirty play that chris paul had with lebron's shoulder elbow
1: Yeah, they were working on LeBron's shoulder afterwards. Uh, LeBron shot a free throw. Chris Paul comes in as the guard out by the three-point line. That's your job to come in and box out the free throw shooter. Uh, But then when LeBron tried to go up, Chris Paul just grabbed him with two arms and just yanked down on his arm. And LeBron, because he just is incredibly strong, you know, he probably suffered a slight sprain, but he didn't, you know, separate his shoulder or anything. And... But I thought it was really every bit the play that Kelly Olenek did on Kevin Love a a few years ago. just Paul kind of got away with it because I think people felt sorry for him because he was injured already. And also because LeBron ultimately was able to continue and didn't apparently suffer a a serious injury. But everything that I said here is... I mean, it really just comes down to the health of of James and CP. If James can get back to being LeBron James, the Lakers are still going to win this series. If CP is going to look like he looked today, or he's going to be limited, you know, being able to dribble with his right hand is like kind of important. The Lakers, they will be on the lookout for that. And they only have two days in between games, as you said. And who knows how long it's going to take that stinger to dissipate you know i think it's the kind of thing where it like slowly comes back over time but is that two days i mean it seemed like it was like slightly getting better as the game went along um you know and Chris Chris paul can't dribble then the suns are, are done in this series too so that's really what all that this series comes down to for me going forward. game two on that one is on tuesday let's talk here uh utah and memphis and beginning with weird news injury wise for the Jets.
2: Yeah, I mean, it looked not only from him not being included on the injury report, but also Donovan Mitchell's own statements that he was going to return after missing more than a month of action for game one of this series, and then he didn't play. It was, it was a late scratch. Instead, they had to start Joe Ingles in his place, and that put strain on Utah's rotation, as it has really for this time, as they've really scuffled, but... I don't want that to obscure what was a, a wonderful performance overall by the Memphis Grizzlies.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, they came in and they fucked shit up. Like, they're more athletic they're tougher on the perimeter. Uh, Dylan Brooks uh, was able to get off. He really exposed the fact that the Jazz only have one good perimeter defender. And then John Morant exposed it when they put uh, Royce O'Neal on Dylan Brooks to put out that fire. Uh, At the end of the game, uh, Kyle Anderson was unbelievable. He had maybe the ultimate slow-mo highlight with the poke away on Boyan Bogdanovich. Boyan did not reseize the Bogdanovich Kron for Bogdan. That really seems to go back and forth, uh, basically every game these days and particularly with them having the exact same contract essentially also uh but uh boy i did try to seize it back with a really nice second half but it wasn't able to quite get going and, and so slow-mo tipped it away from it then went full court derek is running him down and so slow-mo just went even slower and then went in for like the world's slowest dunk which he can still do while not even moving because he has that 7-4 wingspan uh so he was fantastic brooks was fantastic on both ends valentunas the cat I mean, how many of Gobert's fouls were just like battling for either post position or rebounds with Valanciunas? He fouled Rudy Gobert out of the game. I want to say at least three and maybe four of Gobert's fouls came uh, just in kind of scrapping actions with Valanciunas.
2: Yeah, and one of the challenges of being a one-man band defensively is that you have to actually be on the floor and Gobert due to foul trouble. And I'm sure Jazz fans will lament that some of those calls were flawed. I I, you know, I thought overall it was fine, you know, yeah, yeah sometimes he,
1: he got two fouls going for offensive rebounds too which yeah he i think he got a taste for those early when he was getting a ton of them and he ended with five but he, yeah he had two shoves in the back basically uh including one which was pretty obvious for his for his fourth foul in the third quarter and that really totally changed the momentum uh, of the game uh when he had to go out as much as he did uh i mean probably even more so in the second you would say it changed the, the momentum of the game uh when he picked up the third
2: and, yeah, and that, then, was... and that was a part of why Memphis went 32-19 in that second quarter, and then it was huge in the fourth because when Gobert fouled out, Derek Favors made some impactful plays when he was able to stand still around the rim, but whenever they that he needed to be out on the floor, he was stuck in quicksand. And so, like there was one play where John Morant basically drove all the way around, basically did a half moon all the way around, and got around to the basket. Favors eventually gets over to contest the shot, and then tunis gets the putback that was a big late basket in this game and favors just can't do it and so that means and and you talked about the limitations of utah's perimeter defensive rotation that is that is there with or without donovan mitchell now i expect the jazz offense you know having another creator can can be useful for them and they'll hit more threes the jazz were 12 of 47 from long distance in this game and you know some of that was them being better contested but corkson had an absolute nightmare game
1: which they needed with mike conley also getting in foul trouble uh, yeah in the third quarter where he picked up two really quick ones and obviously with Mitchell not playing by the way on Mitchell uh he said he was ready to go then Quinn Snyder said that uh the Jazz medical staff decided to hold him out of game one that he w- Mitchell was not pleased with the decision and Andy Larson asked the Jazz uh if there was a possibility that Mitchell would sit why wasn't he listed on the injury reports last night or this morning the Jazz declined to comment on that I mean, they should clearly get fined Absolutely. for that unless unless they can provide some evidence that he like tweaked his ankle in, in some fashion well
2: yeah. and that They're, and that they weren't and that if they were all if they were evaluating him like that there was some stuff about that well then if you're evaluating him and you're not sure then he should be on the report anyway even if he did re it
1: Yeah. And, you know, Henry Abbott said that he had heard that Mitchell wasn't practicing at all. That had been contrary to some local reports, which again, what is what practicing really means? You know, is that shooting a few free throws or is that actually like, you know, playing in a scrimmage, which they probably did over the last week or so? So obviously the jazz really missed mitchell a lot if you go look at the second spectrum data on this game that's gonna say that the jazz had way better shot quality and you know point expectancy from all their shots and stuff i mean they they had a lot of good shooters who missed shot like conley had a couple of big ones that he missed in the fourth niang all of his were wide open he was one for six uh, but I did think it kind of encapsulated the Jazz problems when Dylan Brooks is going off at the end of the third quarter, pushing the Grizz to a double-digit lead, and they've got George Niang on him. Uh, and so finally they put O'Neill back in to kind of quell that fire once more
2: well and and something that came up late in this game while the jazz did have a comeback and, and had a chance to tie the game at the very end it is more difficult to come back when you don't force turnovers and the jazz as a team that's just not a part of what their defense does and in this game they only forced nine only three of those were live ball and that's about 10% of Memphis' possessions. So you could still, you know, you still be efficient offensively, could still get stops, can get three shot fouls, as they as the Jazz did all of those at times during this fourth quarter. Also Derek Favors, you know, they didn't get as many stops as you would think necessarily. But it takes away one of the ways of making those, like if you need a 10-point comeback, and the Jazz almost did it this game. I'm not gonna say they can't do it or anything silly like that, but it is harder. And Memphis is not exactly the most robust opponent that the Jazz want to face this playoffs.
1: No, that's certainly the case. And a few other notes uh, on this. It looked like things were going to play out exactly as we had predicted when the Jazz led 34-21. But the Grizz went on a 17-2 run, holding the Jazz only nine points in the last eight minutes of the second quarter. And some of their guys at least got going a little bit during the, during that period after it looked like they weren't going to get anything going at all. Uh, the Grizzlies shot 43 floaters in this game, and they hit a bunch in the second half. In the first half, there were five out of 20 from floater range, uh, team floater, obviously, even even without Brandon Clark, who I'm sure was was feeling really left out. Uh, on this and Valanciunas was, was huge he was plus 15 that was uh second best on the Grizz to one Desmond Bain and you know I think what he did with Gobert he's he makes things difficult for Gobert. I mean, probably the worst aspect of Gobert's game other than just, you know, one-on-one scoring is just kind of like being strong and scrapping with these bruiser types inside. He wants to, what makes him so good is like his mobility and his length and his abilities as a help defender. And Valanchunas just got into his body a ton. There are plays where Gobert was trying to get over and help and Valanchunas was just kind of into him and posting up or rolling into him. And, you know, I didn't see any egregious ones ones that should have been fouls but that that was valanciunas's physicality really caused problems for gobert that said gobert was plus nine a lot of that came late in the first early in the second when valanciunas was on the bench and he wasn't matched up with him And then Gobert obviously was uh, in foul trouble pretty much the rest of the way.
2: We also have to talk about the flop of the decade. I don't even know how to qualify this. Where Gobert Gobert tries to get a technical foul, I would presume, on Kyle Anderson when Gobert...
1: yeah, he's already fouled out. By the way, that's yes. that's that's the let's not put the the, the, uh, the don't bury the lead here. He's already fouled out of the game at this point.
2: He's already fouled out of the game, and I can't remember exactly what the con- I think it was a jazz finish around the basket, and so Gobert kind of got closer to the floor than you should, and Anderson pushed him a little bit out of the way, like, hey, you shouldn't be here, and Gobert acted like he'd been flayed by a by a sword, and goes down. Nothing happened. Exactly the right call, and as I I mean. When you flop so horrendously that Reggie Miller cast, castigates you on national television, you know you were egregious, and Rudy Gobert totally was.
1: Yeah, Re- Reggie uh, generally sympathizes with the uh, those floppers, and obviously Gobert, he uh, likes to work himself into a little bit of a lather with the, the feeling like he is persecuted by the refs, yeah, Mike Conley. He had a nightmare game at twenty-two and eleven, but six of eighteen from the floor. Bogdanovich did have over twenty points in the second half, uh, but uh, he also had four turnovers and zero assists. When that's it, it's tough to really have him be a huge creator. You mentioned Clarkson's miserable game. He had four turnovers as well and then i thought at the end of the game really a couple of things stuck out one was that taylor jenkins again went away from jaron jackson jr who was once more a foul magnet though he did have a a block and a big three in the fourth as rudy gobert just didn't pick him up and transition he was running back to pick up his own man i
2: believe chris harrington calls that the combo meal which i really enjoy
1: yeah the block and then three for for jackson i mean that that's what but he was only two out of eight it didn't have a a good game negative 19 for him so they closed again with uh, a shooting guard on the floor in this case uh, grayson allen who i thought had another solid game uh, held up reasonably well defensively uh, played hard another irritating guy to play with uh, on this grizzlies team or maybe to play with too but play against certainly and they just didn't have an answer for john morant other than Rudy Gobert and Ja, he had, it was five out of nine. All of his shots came in the paint. And I think a couple of them ended up being offensive rebounded by Valanchunas. As well, but he was just so fast getting into the paint. His floater has been good. He's got a lot of confidence. He didn't, I think he only took one three in this game. The Jazz were, were, because the Jazz scheme, which is interesting, you know, they didn't go under on him. Maybe that was based on what he did in that game against the Warriors. But their scheme is no, we're going to go over pretty much every screen. We're going to get on your back, force you into Rudy Gobert, and make you make a, a tough shot from mid range uh, with pressure from behind it. But Morant was just so fast accelerating into the paint that he really was able to get great looks on those and may not hit every single one uh, again but uh, I thought he had a nice game he did really struggle defensively I thought in the fourth he got tired he was guarding Conley it it was a difficult decision as well for the Jazz uh, or for the Grizz of who they were going to have Morant guard and they actually put him on Mike Conley because they wanted to go with Brooks on Ingles and Ingles didn't do much in this game either and so Morant I think he just maybe wore down a little bit but he was kind of very straight up and down in the fourth it had some bad defense some of which was bailed out by jazz missed shots but he had enough energy to score it and keep him in it just enough
2: I thought it was a rougher game overall for Memphis's bench now, some of that is you're facing a different opponent and everything else, but Melton pretty much disappeared for me. Tillman, after that huge performance against the Warriors, was largely a non-factor. Trey Jones, Trey Jones, or Tyus Jones, sorry, his older brother, had. Uh, had a couple of a couple of made shots, but generally disappeared. And I thought, you know, the funny thing about going with Grayson Allen, I've consistently thought that Desmond Bain is a better player. Now, Allen was the starter over Bain at the beginning, and I don't think that the plus twenty three for Bain and the minus ten for Allen is necessarily reflective of their contributions to this game. But I also think that Bain is a better defender, and eh, which one of them is better offensively kind of depends on the moment. But I definitely like I I prefer Bain as an overall player.
1: Yeah, I think Allen is a more reliable and a better movement shooter at this point. Although Bain is not terrible in those regards either. Uh, any uh, adjustments that pop out of you for Game 2 other than having not getting in foul trouble and having Donovan Mitchell play?
2: Jordan Clarkson passing it to a wide-open Oni instead of taking a terrible shot that got blocked by Jaron Jackson
1: yeah that's uh Clarkson having his role reduced a little bit it would help but he's you know 0 of 8 was pretty rough for him I think obviously you know the Jazz if you look at this game as a math problem the Jazz obviously would have won it the Grizz only took 23 pointers in the whole game
2: yeah and the Jazz got to the line more and made almost all of them there were 29 of 33
1: yeah but I think it is a problem for the Jazz they got to get better rebounding out of their perimeter guys because on these plays where whether it's Dylan Brooks or John Morant, when those guys get a drive, Valanciunas is going to be there, and the Warriors do a good job of this. Of you don't even have to get the rebound; all you got to do is sort of just show up in the area of the rim and just tip it to anywhere. You know, in today's day and age, there's usually only one offensive rebounder, so as long as you can just tip it away from like the immediate front of the rim, you're probably going to do okay. But they don't really, you know, Bogdanovich is not a good rebounder or O'Neal he'll try to get rebounds uh but Mitchell Conley obviously Mitchell plays I mean that's that's gonna be the big question is whether Mitchell plays in game two and I thought you know I kind of it seemed a little bit to me of like okay now that it's the Grizzlies we have a lot of confidence against these guys as we talked about in the preview for all those reasons of just like how the Jazz are the ultimate math team and the Grizz other than maybe like the Knicks are are you know the non-math team in these playoffs but the Grizz they just play hard man I mean they their defense is just really really impressive considering especially the limitations that they have with Valanchunas defensively and Morant to, yeah and Morant too although Morant is he's at least is starting to become like a good ball hawk now uh in the passing lanes when you throw a floating pass like he can accelerate and, and go grab it uh and, and he's I thought he was decent in the Warriors game not as much this game but yeah I mean Anderson Brooks Bain Guys are a pain, pain in the ass to play against, but you know if the Jazz hit their usual forty percent of threes, then we, we got a totally different game here, and and I would expect the Jazz to come out and blow out the Grizzlies in Game Two. I think they're just the fans will be behind them. I mean, this is remember how many teams you know have lost Game One in the, in the first round. The last two champions have, in fact. But this didn't feel as much to me like a, you know, Orlando Magic versus Toronto Raptors type of thing. Like, the Grizzlies have talent. Like, they do They do, do things that put the Jazz into some difficulty. The Jazz don't have a great matchup for John Morant. Uh, even Brooks is going to use his size unless they put O'Neal on him. And, you know, Brooks had probably didn't talk enough about really how he controlled the game in the third quarter. And he led all scorers with 31 points and was plus 14. So the Jazz, I I think they're still going to be fine in this series, uh, and particularly if they get Mitchell back, and Mitchell can play well, and Gobert can play 40 minutes instead of 25. But I I still really enjoy everything about this Grizzlies team, and and kudos to them for proving that, no, actually it wasn't a fluke that they beat Golden State uh, on Friday.
2: I don't think we'll spend nearly as much time talking about the Sixers over the Wizards. Um, they won one. The Philadelphia won one twenty five one eighteen in the the morning game, and Tobias Harris had a huge performance thirty seven points, fifteen of twenty nine from the field, and that was something I talked about in the preview. Was just that the the Wizards don't have the players to guard him. Fred Katz brought up Denny Avdia's injury, but I mean, even with Avdia, would have been a challenge. And yeah, so,
1: I, I mean, the way this team is built, of like you're the only two wings you have on the team are Hachimura and Avdia. That's you know, it, it's it's tough to be serious about winning basketball games like that
2: it is and a part of why this game was close part of it was Bradley Beal being a monster from two-point range he was 12 of 17 on twos including 9 of 10 in the restricted area but also the Wizards did a lot of their damage when Joel Embiid was off the floor Yeah, and and
1: Embiid took it very easy to avoid balls in the third quarter as well he did did a lot of his damage
2: absolutely and so plus 20 when Embiid was on the floor negative 13 in the the corresponding minutes for Dwight Howard and I don't think that was like Dwight being abysmal and Embiid being great but it all you know it kind of all fit together we also got to see well he didn't get a good game because he only had five rebounds some truly terrible Russell Westbrook defense in this game
1: oh yeah just running with Danny Green in transition and then just stopping and letting, letting Danny Green run under for a layup Like, yes, it's technically not your man, but he's guarding you and you need to stay with him until someone else picks him up. Uh, or, you know, just the totally dumb attempt for a steal in the backcourt and then walk back. I mean, all these people are like, oh, Russell Westbrook plays so hard. Like, yeah, he plays hard when it results in a box score statistic in his favor. N- not as much otherwise. He did play 43 minutes. Well, he's he's like, now.
2: in many ways, he's the reflection uh, 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 in of something else that we talk about a lot, which is the, like, rookie that has one good game that's what you think about and then he has two bad games where yes when you're watching russell westbrook on defense odds are it's because he's doing something flashy it's the other possessions that he's generally pretty bad like when you're not paying as close attention and he like doesn't give a shit about what his guy is doing
1: yeah uh, philly also really struggled from three i do credit the wizards for playing hard and getting back into it philly led yeah. it by uh, at double digits in the fourth uh, the whiz kind of made it a game right down the end and and you know, we thought, hey, the Wizards, they're all about putting pressure on the rim. And Philly with Embiid and Howard, they're just going to shut that off. And that wasn't the case. Like, with Howard out there, they were killing it. Beal, you mentioned he was 9 out of 10. He, he looked really good. I thought he uh, cooked uh, top three defensive player of the year candidate, Ben Simmons. <clears throat> uh, pretty good. It was some other guys on him as well. Theibel. Thibel, like, he he'll get some block he blocked one of Beal's jumpers he got a a steal on him but it's like if he doesn't get the block or the steal it seems like he can get beat kind of badly a a lot of times like I'd like to see him just be a little bit better as moving his feet as just a contained positional defender than he is and and Embiid had 30 points as predicted he completely destroyed Robin Lopez anytime he was matched up against him Alex Len actually was probably the best of their defenders but they were largely just like straight double teaming Embiid most of the time. He, I thought he had a good game in terms of making passes and his mid-ranger was working pretty well also and you know, there was a period like late first, early second, when the Sixers were getting all kinds of wide open looks, cork Moz in particular, he missed a bunch of shots. And, you know, obviously because he missed three jumpers in the first half, you don't get to play in the second half, uh, because that's so predictive of what you're you're shooting. to me in the second half, but Tyrese Maxey got his minutes in the second half. And, uh, you know, there's, the Wiz. This was a good game for them. I just don't think they're going to be able to continue shooting twenty eight of thirty three at the rim. Part of that was was fast break. The Sixers' transition defense was awful. Um, what did you think of Ben Simmons' offensive game?
2: I, I didn't think that he was the like incessant force that I, when I, when when Simmons is at his best. But I also thought he was you know totally fine. And the the Sixers' offense. Was generally pretty good when he was out there, but I, I, you know, I, I like to see him pressure the pressure the basket a little bit more. But he did create create opportunities for others. Did have those 15 assists and only turn the ball over twice.
1: My concern here for Simmons, and I still expect Billy to have a relative cakewalk into the East finals. O of six from the foul line. Yeah, I mean, yeah and he did point. have the he did have the 15 assists. Uh, a lot of that was just kind of you know operating up top, and he threw some wonderful transition passes as, as you kind of alluded to. But I mean, six points, three of nine, O for six from the foul line and after he missed his first two he just kind of wasn't really going up inside he did some have of eight offensive rebounds in this game but even when he would get those he was immediately looking to kick out rather than go up i think he was just was not uh,
2: yeah, a little, not eager a, a, to get fouled. A little Lonzo-itis?
1: Yeah. Now, he he was responsible for Beal on the other end. He played 38 minutes, so the, that's part of why he may have been a little bit less active. But still, I, I it was not a great start because uh, particularly against a Philly team that just, they don't have anyone to guard him, right? Like, if he's, they didn't have uh, anyone to guard Tobias Harris. I mean, they're putting, like, Beal on him. They're putting, you know, Ross on him a little bit. Like, he should be able to dominate those guys physically and get into the paint and be a big score. and it just after he had that nice february he really really has fallen off this year and i've i have big time concerns going up against brooklyn as well i think brooklyn is going to do a really good job of not guarding him if that's the matchup the Bucks, same thing i mean they can just put some, be honest on him and Giannis can just hang out at the rim and make life difficult for all their guys now it, i thought it was encouraging that tobias harris did well but again you noted that this isn't exactly the stiffest defensive opposition that they're going to be facing uh i had a few other small notes here the philly crowd was super into it i, I really yeah. appreciated that um there was one hilarious play where russell westwick tried to ice on ben simmons and then just threw it right to the ref because the wizards are wearing those totally stupid gray uniforms which i mean the philly ones them wearing black right there's a little bit of a history of them wearing black back in the iverson days even Still though really, these
2: got, specific jerseys are stupid but that's yeah and i mean you've
1: got awesome colors like you got a great regular palette uh of red white and blue you're, you're both of affront- these
2: teams have a great regular palette of red white and blue and neither of them used it
1: yeah and so throwing it right to the ref thinking it was one of his gray-shirted teammates was just desserts for wearing those stupid jerseys i thought dwight howard really did a poor job in transition defense getting caught under the offensive goal a number of times ish smith came in and changed the game he was plus nine it seems like he'll come in and just push the ball up and make something good happen on like his first couple of sessions. Hopefully Philly will get a little bit more locked in on playing against him. And uh Embiid's third foul, you know, I know Mark Zumoff went crazy on the local Philly broadcast. That was an obvious, obvious foul in a couple of ways. I mean, number one, like he kind of bridged him a little bit with his body. And number two, he's got his arms forward and there's contact with the arms as well. So it was a very, very clear call on Embiid's third. And a lot of people were crucifying Doc for not challenging, but that was a good non challenge. That would have been held up for sure. Yeah. Um, let's see if I had anything else here.
2: And we mentioned Well, I'll Harris's, say I'll say I'll yeah. say big picture. I could be wrong and I've been wrong many times before it wouldn't stun me if this is the high water mark for the Wizards in the series where a lot of the things went well this Doc can use the foibles of this game as motivation like hey you guys need to care slightly more than this and Beal was wonderful I mean I, I he could be this good again but good could need something like that so whether it's a sweep or five games I, 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 I wouldn't be stunned if that's the way this series goes
1: yeah there was that controversy at the end of Russell Westbrook stepping out on the sideline it kind of looked like he didn't and it kind of looked like he did a, a sean elliott but they ended up upholding the call that he had stepped out it was just like absolutely razor thin uh i thought that doc rivers challenged a charge on joel Embiid off an offensive rebound i was surprised that that one got overturned actually and that did get overturned right am i thinking the right play uh i don't want to go back and look that was the first
2: i've watched i've watched too i've watched too many games i'm not sure
1: yeah uh I, I i had it in my notes here but i didn't actually write down what happened on it and I thought lopez as a rim protector too was not his usual self like getting in a position and staying vertical Like he picked up a number of fouls jumping sideways into guys so it, it didn't have the greatest technique uh he did hilariously try to post up and beat a couple of times and he did have a shot clock violation but he managed to shoot right as the shot clock was expiring a hook shot from like fading away along the baseline that he just never misses that hook shot but that's literally the only way he could possibly put the ball in the basket on a post up. it's just it's really Really just a completely amazing. George Hill uh, had a nice game. I, I think it wouldn't shock me if he closes games over Seth Curry, particularly because I thought Curry did not have a good defensive game. Like Howell Neto drove by him a, a couple of times, and
2: the yeah. Alex Len p- post up experience in the early going, which got me really angry with this game.
1: Yeah, he was uh, he was aggressive uh, offensively.
2: Well, and Scott well, Brooks yeah. was aggressive, giving him opportunities.
1: Now, one of Ben Simmons' three buckets was a ridiculous spinning tip slam oh man that, that was late uh, and, and we also were remiss in not discussing R.J. Barrett putting it on Bogdan Bogdanovic's head Ooh. in the first game As well, though, Bogdanovich did come right back and and hit a three.
2: A wonderful weekend of games and a pretty good weekend of dunks.
1: Yeah, I I mean, is there just, in general, is there any, you know, thing you're feeling better or worse about? We haven't technically even done our overall predictions yet. I think I'll just do those with Hollinger on Wednesday. It'll kind of be fun to do it a couple games into the playoffs.
2: I will not not feel hurt not being included from that because I have no idea what the hell is going to happen the rest of this year.
1: No, well... I mean, I, I think to me, uh, there was this feeling in the back of my head of like, man, oh, it's so wide open. It's the most wide open game, but, or the mi- most wide open postseason we've had in so long. But the thing in the back of my head was the Brooklyn Nets might just fucking roll through this thing, you know. And I think if if that's your theory coming in, I think that this weekend with nobody really looking particularly good among the contenders,
2: yeah, that's that's what I was gonna say is my big takeaway yeah. is There wasn't an oh damn moment for anybody really in these in these games other than arguably the Nets. I would say Nets. Brooklyn, yeah, 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 yeah just because their
1: defense, yeah,
2: yeah, like Milwaukee's defense looked better. Like I thought that Miami struggled to score, and I think that's good for them in that series but I didn't look at the the Sixers performance or the Lakers obviously or even the Suns and I thought the Suns played very well overall and thought this is a buzzsaw this is going to be a major problem for other teams obviously the Clippers lost to the Mavericks um so it's still a long time and I think that this year especially when you consider the weird regular season lead-in like there could be more of an ebb and flow but yeah I think no other team looking strong is a very good thing for the Brooklyn Nets all
1: right well that is good to end End on a reminder too, that you can get our special playoff sale right now, get a year-long membership, 35% off the monthly price. That is available right now, dunkedon.supportingcast.fm. No ads. You can get playoff game recaps every day when they happen. We recorded at 11.30 p.m. Pacific time yesterday. Uh, And obviously, the NBA cast on Hot Mike has been a lot of fun as well. I know while you're getting in there, figuring out the syncing, the next cast is going to be for Hawks-Knicks on Wednesday, and I'm really looking forward to the second game of that series from an excitement standpoint to do that one live. Anything else you want to talk about before we go here?
2: No, I think that's good.
1: All right, we will talk to you all tomorrow night. Till
2: then. Peter, Watfo, Giannis has called for a free throw violation this series. 2%.
1: Uh, 0%. Has he ever been called for one in his entire career? Butler looking to hand off. Can't get a good denial. They switched this. Ariza's three. Oh, big shot there. Wow. The switch just wasn't quick enough. Yep. They they blew the communication. This is what I've been talking about with the Bucs. Their communication on switches has been bad. This year, Holiday didn't know what he was doing. He didn't get out on Ariza, and he hits the three. Middleton. They swing it around. Oh, that was a dangerous pass. Dragic could have intercepted. Late clock. Have to lob it in. Giannis fouled by Duncan Robinson. Man, that was that pass was low, but Giannis just used those arms. And guess what, Danny? More clutch Giannis free throws here.
2: Man, if Dragic had turned, he could have caught. Was that a DiVincenzo pass? He probably could have knocked that away.
1: Yeah. Here we go. Giannis four of seven from the line. We've mentioned it. He struggled last year. They showed his postseason free throw percentage. I'm guessing Shaq and Wilt are the only 20 point per game scorers that have been worse than him. From the foul line and he misses the first I and mean, these misses are at least close, but that's scant consolation at the moment. The Ghosts of Playoffs pass sitting on his shoulders right now for Giannis Antetokounmpo, And we'll see. I'd be trying like hell to get this offensive rebound potentially. And, oh, we're going to get a stoppage. What happened here? Did they just call the 10-second violation? Is that what just happened?
2: Two <laughs> percent, baby.
1: Yes, that's what they called it. Now, Butler drives. They, yeah, and that's a foul on, on Lopez. We'll see whether this could potentially be a flagrant Butler not looking in good shape. That is unreal. Unreal that they called that on Giannis. And now Butler is down. Ow. Yeah, right on the tailbone. That is tough. And, I mean, again, that's we'll see whether this could be a flagrant or not. I mean, lucky for Butler in some
0: ways that he didn't land on his knee there. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic.